Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? Well, uh, I'm uh, a little uh, frustrated. Okay. Because despite the fact that it is summer weather outside. Yes. <laughs> uh, Thumbs down. It is early February, and yet we are already at Oscar time. I very much appreciate when the Oscars are later. Yeah. <laughs> because there are, yeah, we're doing our top 10 this, uh, of the year, our best of the year uh, episode this week, and there are some movies that I just never got to. Um, Atlantics being, I think, the biggest one that I, I didn't, didn't catch Atlantis. Uh, I didn't catch I Lost My Body. Uh, mm-hmm. I still plan, it's not like I'm going to never see these movies. I still, I still plan to watch them. Sure. But I'll be frustrated if I watch them and one of them is like, fuck, that would have ended up on my list, you yeah. know? Um, uh, but so for that reason, um, I kind of hope that the ratings for this year's Oscars are terrible yeah. so that they <laughs> go, well, I guess that didn't work. And they move it back to, uh, there was a time when the Oscars were in early March. Yeah. Yeah. That was a wonderful time. Yeah. I remember being, uh, whatever year, cause I've said before, uh, oh no, actually I've said before, but it has, it's a Patreon episode that hasn't posted yet. The first time I ever watched the Oscars was March of 1998. The, yeah. the, the Titanic as good as it gets apostle year, uh, LA confidential year. Sure. Right. Um, and yeah, I was with my, I was with my family visiting my aunt and uncle in Virginia cause we were on spring break. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that's when the Oscars were. I was, Oh no, that was the Golden Globes, not the Oscars. That's right. Uh, I was visiting Missouri from Denver with my dad and my grandpa because we were uh, debating whether, like, where in the Nixa area we would live. Um, So we were visiting there when the Golden Globes were on, and I, I have a very specific memory of Titanic winning Best Picture, and I was like angry about that i'm like well the oscars will do it right they'll give it to la confidential yeah yeah little Not did knowing, i know yeah yeah and <laughs> knowing how things work um i don't think i ever watched the golden globes until um i lived in los angeles i don't think i ever watched them before hmm. in fact i didn't even watch them the first year because i didn't know they were happening sure and i um didn't make it to a screening of not a screening. I say screening cause I'm so LA now, yeah. but just a movie theater. I was going to go with, I was supposed to meet a friend to see the squid and the whale. Um, and it was at the, uh, the landmark in West LA, which mm-hmm. was a very, uh, in the same place as the landmark is now, but a very different, uh, uh, theater very small uh mm. in the middle of the mall which the mall is now closed right yeah yeah that theater is still there but the mall is closed anyway uh and i didn't realize so i missed the movie and to this day have never seen the squid in the whale oh it's great yeah that's what i hear i have it i can lend it to you uh no i gotta watch atlantics and uh, i lost sure, my body of course <laughs> i don't have time um I do have time to uh, ask you if we have a sponsor. I was almost went into uh, just barely though. The ad read. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, yeah, uh, we do have a sponsor. The sponsor is the short film White to Play, um, which is uh, there's an Indiegogo campaign to uh, fund this short film by Yona Paley, which we'll talk about. Uh, well, right now, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Michael is a tournament chess player locked in the tensest match of his life. While he contemplates which move to make, a series of strange and horrifying events take place, threatening to throw the game and his life out of whack. Can our hero deliver what is necessary to checkmate his opponent, or will he end up a victim of his own failings? Writer-director Yona Paley draws up such classic films, draws upon such classic films as Alice in Wonderland, The Passion of Joan of Arc, and The Wizard of Oz to portray the mental and existential stresses around being a chess player. Uh, 
Uh, we have a few weeks to, oh, they have a few weeks to raise funds on Indiegogo, which will help, co- help cover the costs of costume, set design, and the visual effects required to create this fantastical yet oppressive world. Fantastical yet oppressive. You got me. Uh, that's my kind of thing. I love <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, so if, if that interests you, um, uh, I'm always in favor of, of helping uh, young filmmakers like get something going, especially something that is ambitious. I remember the kind of filmmaker I was back in film school. I always operated well within my resources. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I like when somebody says, like, no, I want to try and do something that's a little bit more uh, that epitomizes sort of me and what I want to do. So uh, if you go to battleshippretension.com on the left hand side, you'll see a, a little graphic that says white to play. Uh, and you can click on that and contribute to the Indiegogo. I believe their budget is $9,000, uh, which is, you know, sizable but not unattainable. So, uh, you know, help out, uh, help out independent film and, uh, head on over and fund uh, white to play. All right. And I want to tell you about tweetardio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Uh, my tweetardio.com earbuds sounded so good that I cried, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> uh the other day. No, I was listening to, I was listening to, um, or watching on at work. I was watching on YouTube during a break. Um, <laughs> uh, I was watching some of the Grammy performances, listening to them, and I'd never, I'd heard of Camila Cabello. Mm. I'd never heard this song, First Man. And uh, I liked it so much that I've since listened to the song, song on Spotify multiple times. Um, and it is, uh, it, it wrecks me, this song. Okay. It's a, I can't even talk too much about, but like, it's a song about... I'm going to get so emotional it's getting talking now. about it. Okay. She's singing like to her father, saying like, it's okay that I'm like getting married and moving on. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Uh, I, I thought I could do it, but no, anyway, it's, it's, it's great. It's called first man. Wow. Uh, and, uh, I cried a bunch, uh, and it sounded great in my tweet. Are you come here, buds? A little to too good. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. I was going to ask like, uh, is this a song I would, uh, uh appreciate yes. or yeah. is it the type of music that I would appreciate or would I, it's, yeah, it, it's just a, a, a pop vocal type of like okay yeah i'll give it a listen and i'll uh, i'll text you a little crying emoji yeah. <laughs> because i probably will be as well um sounded good at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds uh they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces plus they offer financing options accept eligible insurance and you can pay with your hsa fsa Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right. Let's get into it, shall we? We have a yeah. lot to get into. All right. Uh, I don't know why you're so upset. Just because um, I'm not happy. Look, no, no, wrong. I think all 10 movies in my top 10 are great. But, you know... You listed the movies that you didn't see, and it's like, oh, those are so far out <laughs> from from my list of the films I didn't see. Like, I'm really upset. Like, I didn't see Pain and Glory. Um, I didn't see Honeyland. Like, movies that people really yeah. love this year. Um, and 
and I'm not really, I mean, I guess I, it's just life. Life just gets in the way and like, I'm still kind of figuring out what it means to be a teacher from a scheduling standpoint. I guess I did make a film over the summer and that took a lot of time. Uh, but yeah, so I just like, and I don't think I realized until probably about a week ago, just how much I myself require that last two to three weeks, uh, uh, that we, you know, around Oscar time. And, uh, so I think I was operating as though I still had them. And then, uh, I nope. didn't. Yep. Yeah, here we are. So, all right. All right. Well, um, have I, uh, I know you've seen my number one. Have I uh, seen your number one? Yes. Okay. Um, so where do you think we should start? Who, with whom do you think we should start? Uh, you let's, let's do that. Okay. What the hell? All right. So, uh, if you're new to the show, uh, first off, get comfortable cause this tends to be a long episode because we're not just doing our top 10. We start all the way at the bottom. We rank every film we saw. No, um, we, we, we go from negative to positive. So we start with the worst, what we think is the worst film of the year. And then we do the most overrated film of the year. Then we get into more positive stuff. We do underrated. Then we do our honorable mentions. Then we get into the top 10. Right. So I'm going to start with what I uh, just getting real negative right from the beginning. Then what I think is the worst 2019 release that I saw in 2019. And it's, the Aeronauts. Oh, okay. uh, the, oh, that's your worst. Worst. Wow. I truly hated it. After the first scene, the first scene is uh, a lot of fun. And um, uh, Felicity Jones mm-hmm. is the actress in it. <laughs> it took Did me you almost say Huffman? Uh, no, I okay. get her confused with Daisy Ridley. Is, oh, I is that weird? That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're both like, like British and kind of like... And then Alicia Vikander, they all kind of came about around <laughs> the same time. For yeah, me. but at least I know like uh, Alicia uh, oh, Vikander... Me. Um, she's Danish, right? Um, yeah. But Daisy Ridley and, and Felicity Jones are both Brits, and that's like I think of them. And I believe Felicity Jones was in Rogue One, so like they're oh, both right. these so they're okay. all Star Wars related. Sure. Yeah. So I always I, I get I always have to stop and make sure I'm yeah. So Felicity Jones, the first scene, she's uh, really hamming it up in a great way. I'm like, oh, this movie's gonna be fun, and then it's just like turgid so fakey manufactured there's like oh here's the stressful part where she's gonna oh is she gonna fall out of the balloon no of course she's not yeah uh, um and, and and so it just seems like i don't know i don't usually think like this because i love movies um of all shapes and sizes but the aeronauts is a movie that's so effects heavy that i honestly started thinking like what kind of what good could have been done with this money? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> yeah. what charity could they have d- donated to yeah. that would have done more than uh, this uh, just third-rate hackneyed waste of my time? And from a director who made one of the what, one of my favorite movies in recent years, Wild Rose. Uh, uh, director? Uh, his name's Tom Harper, I think. Hmm. I always want to say Tom Hooper, but that's different. Different guy. I think it's Tom Harper. Um, and, uh, yeah, he made wild Rose, which also came out in the U S this year. He had two movies come out in the U S yeah. this year, but it was a 2018 release, uh, in the UK. And that's a, a delight. I think he, it's, I think maybe that movie was just at a scale that works for him. Um, and also, uh, you've got Jesse Buckley in the lead role in wild Rose. And I think she's, uh, a talent. Uh, I've been saying this since I saw beast back in 2017, I think, um, uh, Jesse Buckley is someone we're going to be talking about a lot in, mm. in future years. Whereas, uh, uh, Eddie Redmayne and Felicia Jones, I think a few years ago seemed like someone that people going to be talking about a lot, but have kind of like not really, uh, gone beyond that initial promise. Have not really seen the, uh, 
there's not as much you, you scratch the surface of those two actors and there's more surface as people uh sure. will say unfortunately it's like that uh it's like that joke that pete holmes wrote but then gave it to uh uh robert buscemi okay which is uh it's like it's like you know there's just something about penguins that you feel like if you cut them over the uh, cut them open there's just more penguin <laughs> but you'll that's find funny. that's not the case <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> uh and what's weird like uh, i do think eddie redmayne and felicity jones have chemistry together they just sure. keep being in movies that obliterates their chemistry the best they're the in best the theory part, of everything the right? best part yeah. of the theory of everything is before it becomes a you know a biopic about a man with who's who, who has a very uh, specific disease when it's the the beginning when it's just like kind of like a almost like a rom-com like them courting and falling in love mm-hmm. like i like that it's sweet i think they have good chemistry together but uh, uh and then here you've got this so much so many unnecessary layers on top of layers plus it does the biopic thing even though aeronauts isn't it's a half biopic eddie redmayne's character is a real person mm-hmm. felicity jones character is not she's kind of She's kind of an amalgam, a composite of other real people, but in real life, none of those real people ever actually went up in a balloon with Eddie Redmayne's character. So it's it's half like a biopic, but a lot of it is is, is just fiction. But anyway, it does that biopic thing of like uh, everyone doubts him, and we get to feel smug because we know he's right because he's the hero of the movie of we're course, watching. Yes, uh, I hate that. I hate that. Yeah, very, uh, very Aaron Brock- Aaron Brockovich yeah, syndrome. Yeah, Pardon sort of thing. Um, All right, what, what, what did you think was the worst movie of twenty nineteen? Speaking of effects heavy, um, I do not begrudge a film having like being heavily CGI or anything like that. Sometimes it's the only way you can do it, and when you've got something like, for example, Avengers: Infinity War. You, it's done extremely well. Mm. Um, but the downside of CGI um, is that it, it makes people feel like we can do anything now. And just because oh. you can doesn't mean you should. John Favreau with the <laughs> fucking Lion King. Are you kidding me? This movie I hated at the time. Like I was... There's there's good stuff in it. There's there's always good stuff in almost any movie. There's some acting stuff that I that I enjoy and but it's just everything about this film is a complete misfire except it's box office. Um <clears throat> but just like it was just so what I said at the time, it's just wrong in its bones. It's very conception <laughs> is wrong. Um it's and it's just this idea of like well, let's make the Lion King live action. Now, putting aside the idea of it's not actually live action, right. it's just a different type of animation, putting that aside, like, okay, let's make it look photorealistic. Okay. And in the meantime, let's also have it be the exact same story, except with maybe one or two like more songs. But beat for beat, it's the same. Not exactly line for line, but not far off either. Let So let's have it be the exact same story, but it looks realistic. And by the way, in making it look realistic, we're, we will drain it of all charm, all vibrance. Every reason that the original film exists is now gone. Uh, and it really just feels like a very big experiment, and, and the audience ate it up because, hey, it's the lion king and yet when i talk to my 
Now my college students, when I talk to my middle schoolers and the high schoolers that I teach as, as part of that after school program, I asked them what they thought. And guess what? They said the exact same thing. They said, they're like, I like the original better. It's like, it's more colorful and it was just more fun. It's like, yes, more fun. Because as it turns out, as much as I adore my cats, they're not very expressive in their face yeah. uh, unless you draw them in 2D animation, in which case you can have them do whatever you want. Right. Re- making something look realistic, on one hand, yeah, it's it's a bit of a feat, but the feat, you get, you get over it after 20 minutes and then you realize what you're missing. And what you're missing is humanity. I realize we're watching animals, but the original... Uh, animated film was not missing humanity because of what they were able to do. Mm. But everything about this project just hamstrings John Favreau, who I think is a very capable director. So like by having to hew so close to the original story, but then having to really make sure everything looks realistic. It's like this film could only ever be so good. Uh, but then in other things, like as much as I like Shio Telegio for as a, as a, an actor, his voice, his voicing of scar specifically scars song just completely robs that of any real, mm-hmm. uh, any real life. Like everything, it just, the film is so wrong. <laughs> I, I like, this is this is officially looking at my list. This is my second to last film. The last film was actually a movie called The Last Laugh, starring Chevy Chase and Richard Dreyfuss, and it just wasn't very good. But who gives a shit? Okay, uh, All right. you know. So like this because there's it has so many resources, a good filmmaker, a good cast, and yet it, it's it just shouldn't be. It is a crime against art, uh, and I don't say that lightly. Um, it, it just no, thank you. I hated it so much. All right. So speaking of things we, we hated, um, moving on to overrated movie of the year. Okay. Uh, mine is Julius Ona's loose. Okay. Uh, L U C E. And I know this is based on a stage play and I, I guess I could kind of see it maybe working on stage where you could stage it in more of an avant garde type of way because mm-hmm. none of these characters resembles a human being in any way at any point in the movie. No sure. one behave. It's like a movie from another planet. Um, but, it, uh, actually it's not because that actually sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's basically just, it's, it's a series of little like, uh, ethics puzzles that it almost feels like the movie is like leaning in and being like, like leaning out of the screen to you and being like, what would you do? What would you sure. do here? It just seems like, uh, well, I uh, can't solve this. Can you, <laughs> uh, yeah, it seems really pleased with itself. Um, with, uh, with it's sort of like self-consciously again, manufacturing. It's the thing I don't like about the aeronauts. I don't like the, about this is everything feels so manufactured. Um, yeah, but m- manufacturing these, uh, uh, the, these ethical difficulties, you know, like, Oh, no one's a good, no one's a really good character. Like, yeah. uh, uh, and it's like, yeah, that's something I actually like in movies generally. But, uh, when that's the whole point of the movie, it, it becomes a little, uh, it becomes a little strident in its own way. Okay. All right. Uh, for me now on one hand, not unlike three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, where, that was not my official answer, but it also kind of was. And yet amongst our group, it was not a highly rated film. Right. right. So similarly, I would say Joker, which was nominated for more Oscars than anything else, huge box office. And a lot of critics really loved it. I, I could easily say that that's overrated, except amongst a lot of critics, yeah. 
I'd say even the larger critic community, it, they're, even the people that like it view it with suspicion. Uh, and, uh, and so, so I don't, that could be my answer, but I'm not picking my, I'm not picking that as my answer. My answer is Jordan Peele's us, uh, which is not bad. It's not I think a bad it's quite movie. Good, actually. I think the first 40 minutes are 40 to 45 minutes are great. Genuinely great. Then it, I mean, it makes sense. It makes total sense that this guy started in sketch and then has gone on to make the twilight zone because as much as I love get out, it's, you know, it, it's pretty small and pretty contained. The bigger the story, it would appear the more Peel feels he needs to explain it. So after the first 45 minutes, when you've got real terror, real humor, real humanity, beautifully shot, um, you start getting into the explanatory phase and all my, and for me, almost all of the intensity, whatever is there, I, I attribute to the actors doing great work. Um, it just it just evaporated for me, and I felt like I was just watching somebody explain something. And it just uh, and then when the end is re- and then when we get that final shot of the end, I'm like, I feel nothing here. Hmm. And I really wish that I had because the, those first 45 minutes, man, I was in. I was totally on board, and I loved it. Uh, and then it just kind of I maybe this is because I've been doing a, a little bit more uh, script consulting lately. Like if if I had looked at that, it's like, I don't know how many drafts he wrote, but I feel like he needed one or two more hmm. to at least, I'm fine with explaining stuff, but just at least doing that while also incorporating elements of fear or the unknown or any of these other things. I, I think there are, because I, uh, I, I like the movie a lot more than you, but mm-hmm. I do. My one problem with it is that there's, there's stuff that is explained that I was like, Oh, I didn't care about that. You didn't yeah. need to tell me that. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. Um, yeah. that but, is the downside just in general of like anything that winds up being like big on exposition. Sometimes it winds up explaining something like, I either knew it already or I didn't care. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, Oh, I'm glad you, you explained that it, it, uh, inception was like that to me as well. Oh yeah. That's a good, that's a good one. Um, but I think I do feel there's still elements of the unknown, even while the exposition is, is going on. I, I really like, even if it's something as simple as the, the production design of the, when we get to the, extended sequence down where the tethered people live. Um, you got two things going on. You've got this, you've got her explaining like where these tethered people came from that I don't care about, (laughs) Uh, but you've got it back against the backdrop of, I think a really interestingly designed and lit, uh, uh, place that like that this is evoking more visually than anything that's on the, uh, that's in the, in the, in the screenplay. So I, it, it never, I see what you're saying, but it never lost me. And in fact, I would say uh, most of my favorite parts of the movie are after the first Hmm. 45 minutes. Um, uh, including, I mean the, the, um, yeah, the movie's very, uh, very funny a lot, but the, the extended sequence, the, I'm trying to figure out how to say it without, because I, I don't want people to be spoiled if they haven't seen it. Um, but, the, the extended sequence at uh, Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss's home yeah. um, is, I think, just masterful. It's my favorite part of, of the movie. It works uh, as dark comedy. It also yeah. works as um, 
as horror. I think it's also the most overtly horrific part of the movie, I think yeah. like, uh, or at least traditionally horrific. And then there's like a home invasion type of element, uh, to it. It also has my friend, Sean, that I, uh, used to do previously on with, um, uh, he always has a thing, his little, I don't know. He, he should publish it somewhere, but he always like asks about the best or talks about like the best needle drop quote unquote moments of the year, the best mm-hmm. uses of existing sure. songs. And, uh, the use of fuck the police yeah. in us is really hilarious and, and really good. And you know, that sequence, it is really good. And I'm, I like the incorporation of it because I'm not opposed to expanding the scope of the film to incorporate this other family and that sort of thing. But I think he expands it so much that it just, I think he is not yet the filmmaker that can keep a hold of everything and keep a consistent tone going. Or if you're going to change the tone, change it into something at at least as compelling as the initial one. Um, But it's still, it's still a fairly well-made film. I just think that it's uh, overrated. So what's your underrated? That's my question. Sticking with the horror genre. Okay. My underrated film of the year, and I'm going to pull up the rotten tomato score because I think it's a crime. Okay. Even though I know I understand this is like evidence that rotten tomato scores don't actually uh, mean anything. Yeah. 51% on rotten tomatoes for one of my favorite horror films of the year. Babak Anvari's wounds, oh, okay. which is, uh, has an incredible cast. Uh, you've got uh, army hammer in the mm-hmm. lead and you've got Dakota Johnson, um, as his, his girlfriend. You also got Zazie beats, uh, Carl Gloosman. Remember him from uh, nocturnal animals? Um, is that the movie who's called nocturnal animals? Nocturnal right? animals. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember who he plays though. Um, he's one of the, one of the animals. Yeah. Yeah. One of the bad guys. Um, and, um, so it's, uh, I have an idea of why people, a couple ideas about why people don't like it. Um, it is very much the opposite of a Jordan Peele horror movie. It never has any sort of explanation of like, what is the metaphor here? Or, you know, there's no, you can't easily like, yeah, the character's an alcoholic, but I don't think, I don't think this is about that, or I don't think no. um, it's it's not clear that what uh, in a in a straightforward like A to B sort of one to one sort of way what it's a quote unquote about, which is actually something I like about it. Another thing that I like that I understand what people don't like is um, no character in the movie is a good person. That's I think something that when I was a younger person I had difficulty with. Uh, you know when when all the characters sure. uh, were were despicable like Zazie beats his character is the closest to being a good person because she's the only one who seems self-aware about being a bad person. <laughs> um, but mostly it's just uh, really uh, uh, self-interested characters, people who act selfishly, who betray one another, um, who don't care about other people's feelings. Um, you know, uh, army hammer is Carl Glusman is Zazie beats boyfriend and army hammer. is just like, openly trying to get him to leave so that he can leave the bar so that he can hit on, <laughs> on yeah. Zazie beats more. They're just bad people, um, all, all around. Uh, but the horror elements are really scary. This guy, Babak Anvari, he also made under the shadow back in 2016. Oh, okay. I think, um, that's the Iranian, mm-hmm. uh, horror movie. Um, he really handles uh, handles horror. The the premise is that Army Hammer is a New Orleans bartender, and uh, there's some underage kids in the bar, and then a fight breaks out between some other guys in the bar and the under, underage kids like scram because like the cops are coming and we're mm-hmm. not old enough to be here. And one of them leaves their phone behind, and Army Hammer uh, um, picks it up, and he doesn't you know 
put it in the lost and found sure. and uh, try to get it back to anyone because he's selfish. He's just a jerk. He takes it home and like uh, finds his way into it and starts going through this person's phone. And in doing that, he seems to unleash something into his home and into his brain that, that you know, some sort of sinister supernatural uh, presence. So you've got a bunch of cool, scary stuff. Um, you've got a bunch of uh, shitty people being shitty to each other. It's darkly funny in that way. It's also a New Orleans movie, which uh, mm-hmm. I like. And uh, I am. Uh, yeah. So I, I understand, I think why so many people were turned off by various elements of it, but um I don't think those are, I actually think that those are, uh, uh, movies, uh, assets. All right. So my underrated film is one that I saw fairly recently and that is, uh, dark waters. Oh, I still haven't seen that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's close to my top 15. Uh, it might be in my top 20. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a groundbreaking film. In fact, much of it feels like a throwback to the the '90s and early 2000s. Certainly, its its visual style does. Um, but I think what I really like about it is its structure. Um, is that it takes this idea of sorry the uh, the only person you are bothered by. The, I know the little clown horn that's happening because uh, there's somebody that goes through our selling? neighborhood. Oh, various. Oh, okay. All kinds of little snacks and treats for the kids. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Did you ever get any? No. I'm sure it's fine. Uh, it's more just like they just hit that clown horn, and after a while, part of me is like, if you're still hitting it, then you know what? I think you've tapped out. I think yeah. you're tapped out in this little part of the neighborhood. Maybe yeah. move on to the next block. Next block, yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, the the idea of, oh, well, we've got this person working against a big corporation that's been polluting the environment or, you know, or poisoning people with cigarettes, whatever it is, like we've seen it a million times before, but the structure is so, it feels fresh precisely because it does what so many other movies don't do, is these court cases take years, but a lot of directors and writers think, well, we're not, we need to condense this Mm. so that we can, you know, uh, tell this story in a way that the audience can relate to, uh, dark waters like, Nope, it takes years. And so this is going to go on and on. And the fact of, of a character who is just sticking with it, uh, even when other people involved in the case are losing their passion, that's the story is that in order to make any kind of real change, the, the people in power, they can just wait you out most of the time mm-hmm. because they have resources, they have a stronger will. And so it's like, what, what does it look like for an individual to have a strong will? Um, to the extent that like their family is getting angry at them. So that's one aspect that I like, but the other is again, from a structural standpoint, the idea that we have this character and he's fighting against this, uh, he's fighting against DuPont, uh, because they've been, you know, poisoning the environment, but it's not totally clear how, and everything's kind of vague for about 45 minutes. And you know that they've done something wrong. You don't totally, totally know what it is. And after about 45 minutes, you get to a point where you're like, I don't think they're going to, I don't think I'm going to know more than I, than they've already told me. And then he sits down with his wife to explain, this is what my case is about. And it feels like he's telling us as a, and and it comes at such an important moment because if they had started with it, it would have been. It's good to know no matter what. But if he had, if they'd started with it, um, I think 
we wouldn't have quite been able to keep all of that in mind throughout the rest of the film. But the fact that we see all of the after effects first, we get the emotional impact first, then we come to understand, and then they understand the intellectual chemical basics of what's going on. And now we can move on with the knowledge and the emotion together so that, which is going to carry us through those long stretches where nothing is quote unquote happening. Uh, it's, it's a really well-structured film anchored by a solid performance by Mark Ruffalo and the rest of the cast. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's not an, an astonishing film, but it took a very familiar type of movie and made it feel kind of fresh to me. And uh, so that's, that's my underrated. All right, that means we get into our honorable, honorable mentions. That's right. And, and my annual not being able to pronounce the word honorable. There we go. Which I feel like this is a very specific reference, but there's a um, joke in the movie Dude, Where's My Car? Okay where Andy Dick makes fun of another character's pronunciation of the word honorable. Okay. Because the person is French, I think, or whatever. Um, I have no memory of that scene. Oh, well, you probably haven't seen Dude, My Car as many times as I have. Uh, I saw it once 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. No, we used to, when I, my first video store in Valley Park, Missouri, Star Video, uh, which then became a video update. But when it was mm-hmm. Star Video, we got to watch whatever we wanted as long as it was PG-13 or, or lower. Sure. Um, and so we watched Dude, My Car kind of a lot in the video store. So I remember most of it you know there's um, a star video on woodman and uh uh van owen they're not related because i don't think it was not a chain it was i know there was a star video in uh colorado where i went as well um so we're into the honorable mentions the way we do this is i'm just gonna go through my five then you go through your five right we will you will stop me if i say something that's going to come up uh, later which i know will happen at least once um, here, so I'll, I'll just get started at number at number fifteen. Uh, Ari Aster's Midsummer. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number fourteen, Bong Joon Ho's Parasite. We'll talk about it. Uh, number thirteen, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. No, <laughs> it, it, we it, will it, not be talking about it. Yeah, it just missed. It sounds like just it's number sixteen. Oh yeah, that's a that's a bummer. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I've got you know. A, 16 through 20 that I'm bummed. We're not talking yeah. about. Um, but yeah, so, uh, little women is, uh, the, one of the more, most recent, uh, uh, additions to, to the, to this, uh, part of the list. Um, cause I just saw it a couple weeks ago and there's the, the, I, and here's the thing. I, full disclosure had never read little women or seen another adaptation. I never right, saw the, uh, the Jillian Armstrong. Is that her name? Who did the 94 sounds one? Right to me, yeah. Um, so I didn't, I, I, I knew certain plot points just through the picking it up from the culture or whatever. But, um, uh, it, it was a, it was a brand new experience to me story wise, but I also feel like that didn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm like the story is not what I loved about little women. It's the moment to moment and the experience yeah. of watching these people interact. But we don't, uh, we don't do in depth discussions of the honorable mention. So I loved little women. Uh, speaking of, this is a theme this episode and there are probably other examples. Uh, speaking of me crying, mm-hmm. um, yeah, teared up more than a few times during little women. Yeah. All right. So my number 12 then is, uh, Grinder shot as blinded by the light. Not going to come up later? No. Nope. Uh, well, close. Very close. Speaking of crying, uh, this is probably, I saw this um, 
at at Sundance at like eight thirty in the morning, like on day four or whatever. So I was like exhausted. So I tend to be an easier cry at that <laughs> point. But it's a very emotional uh, movie that um, I think, on the one hand, very much speaks to things that we're talking about uh, in in our culture right now in in U.S. culture and U.K. culture about. Um, the immigrant experience of the second or third generation immigrant experience in traditionally, you know, in the, the person of color experience in traditionally white uh, cultures and blind by the light says a lot about that, but it's also very, very specific. It's very specific to yeah. this town of Luton to the fact that he's a teenage male uh, Pakistani uh, uh, first generation or second generation. Um, the fact that it's about Bruce Springsteen, yeah, and it's about Bruce Springsteen at a time and place when it wasn't cool to like Bruce Springsteen for him. It's a very specific set of circumstances, yeah. Um, that, of course, as we always say, uh, end up speaking to something universal, which is what um, art in particular and or art in general and music in particular uh, tends to mean to teenagers when they feel that it's speaking to them that uh, it's it, it imprints on you and and you can never uh, shake that one thing that I that I like when you talk about exploring the uh, son of a bitch uh, when you talk about the inner the the uh, immigrant experiences that like the this this guy because of his sensibilities doesn't really fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would be obviously he's Pakistan, uh, second generation, uh, Pakistani, uh, living in Lon- London. Wait, where is it? Luton is the Luton. name of the town. Um, and so he's not going to fit in with the like native, uh, uh, British. Um, but then he doesn't fit in with his family either because right. he has these sensibilities. And one thing that I actually kind of like about that is, I like it, but it also is a little bit tragic. Um, the idea that when you're an artistically minded person mm. and I could, I think this could, you could say this about anything that is any passion that a person has, but some passions can kind of ingratiate you more with the crowd. Uh, but as you said, like this particular passion, it hits him in a very personal way. Yeah. And it's not even a British artist. It's an American artist, like yeah. someone who's outside of everybody else uh, in the, every other uh, demographic here. Uh, and I like that it's it really plays up that like, yeah, like you can be an outsider in the midst of outsiders mm-hmm. uh, if you're like an artistically minded person. But that that you, you're almost when it when it unlocks that passion of yours and that feeling that finally somebody understands what I'm going through. Uh, it's worth, it's, it's worth what you're paying, which is like you're paying in relationships and status, but it's worth it because finally someone is saying what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I'll also mention that Bruce Springsteen is just great. Sure. It's great music. (laughs) Um, and then my final, uh, final honorable mention, (laughs) Casey yeah, Aff- you really uh, dodged the bullet of mispronunciation there. Yeah, um, Casey Affleck's "Sorry, Light of My Life." Um, I'm saying sorry because I know that there are people that to whom that uh, very name uh, could be uh, triggering, uh, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I don't know what else to say, um, but uh, you can listen to the movie journal where we talked more in depth about "Light of My Life." Yeah, but. Um, uh, the movie is such when I, when I read what it, what it was about, cause I didn't, I, I, it completely went under my radar until I started looking at various critics that I like top 10 lists and saw it show up once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, from, I should mention male critics, 
Uh, I don't know if that's uh, uh, mm. uh, so like me, uh, uh, men are the one who are ones who are willing to put Casey Affleck on their list. Um, uh, maybe women are seeing through his bullshit and his very like uh, a movie that he made that is very pro woman. Sure. Um, but uh, when I so I was like, okay, let me check out this Casey Affleck movie, and then I saw what it was about, which is that it's a sort of the road type of thing. It's like a, um, uh, a father and his daughter, uh, you know, moving from place to place to the countryside after uh, the sort of apocalyptic, cataclysmic, epidemic event. Um, and I was like, we've seen that. Like I mentioned, the road, which mm-hmm. I didn't even like. I was like, we've seen uh, we we've seen this uh, a lot, but it's. Uh, it's such a unique, I can't believe I just said such unique. That's not unique means one of a kind. You, there's no like variable stages of uniqueness. It's the thing is either once unique again, or it isn't. I, once again, I disagree. One out of 10 is unique. One out of a hundred is very unique. Um, I, I, I guess, I don't know. Um, but it's a, it's a unique approach to this kind of storytelling in that it's not about, I mean, it is very much about our culture at large because it's about, uh, the, uh, the, the influence that women have and the fact that men, um, or the idea that men, uh, would not fare well without, uh, the female influence, but it's more specifically a movie about parenting and the way that it unfolds is that most of, most of the stuff, that is the sort of post post apocalyptic type stuff happens off screen. It's mostly just Casey Affleck and his daughter talking. Like I said, the opening shot is I think 11 minutes long and it's not, it's not a showy, like, you know, Birdman type of like sure. uh, moving shot. It's just like they're in bed. He's telling her, he's making up a bedtime story to tell her. It's um, a moving shot. Yeah. But not in that way. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's a really great uh, uh, achievement in in um, in directing and writing and cinematography and, and just in, in patience. But I also I don't know I I, I feel I, I, part of me feels bad because uh, he's a creep. Sure. All right. What are your honorable mentions? Stop saying it like that. Just say honorable. I can't. Is it a St. Louis thing? No. It's that it's it's that that are comes at a place that I want to swallow it in a way. So I say honorable. Oh, interesting. If I'm, if I'm speaking too fast and I try to say honorable, I, I miss, I'm, I, I skip over the R and I say honorable, honorable, like, Oh wow. Honor, honorable. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I have if to you say ever said, honorable. If you ever said honorable Louisville, Ooh, we're in bad shape. Uh, okay. So my, uh, I guess number 15, uh, is Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell. That's my number 16. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's weird. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a perfect film. I really, uh, I, you know I what is, well, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> don't you worry. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but like uh, the Olivia Wilde character, like putting aside the idea of, of portraying like a female, uh, journalist this way. She's also just really two dimensional. And I feel mm-hmm. like they just make her just too obvious of a villain. It's like, ah, that's, I wanted more from Billy Ray. Come on. Uh, who did yeah, breach true. and he did, uh, uh shattered, shattered glass. glass yeah. Um, but so putting that aside, I do really like that. Like the film is, 
it wants to, it's called Richard Jewell. Like, uh, they even changed the name from the ballot. Like it's just his full name. And it really is trying to get us to know who he actually was. And it doesn't paint him with a overly negative, br- uh, an overly positive brush. Like they show that he, that power yeah. does get to his head and he is a bit of a wannabe and he is a bit of a, a misfit, but because of how he looks and how he sounds and where he comes from, uh, there is a, a tendency to to just say like, "Oh, misfit here equals dope," or uh, kind of a or or an idiot or just kind of this southern type of guy. And what's interesting is I don't know if you've seen that uh, footage that's been floating around from CNN of uh, Don Lemon and uh, his two guests no. making fun of Trump supporters and uh, doing southern accents as a result, and uh, Don Lemon just laughing his ass off at uh, at uh, these guys' impressions of Trump supporters. Um, it's ill-timed. It's unfortunate. And it definitely, um, and sure enough, the RNC took that footage and used it in an ad, uh, saying like, they think you're a joke. And then you look at something like Richard Jewell, which right. I think would have, would have done better at the box office if it came out after this. Um, this only happened in the last week. Um, and, and I will, I'll hold off on saying what the guys said, uh, in that little, uh, exchange because I may kind of sort of agree with some of it, but I'm going to hold off on that either way. The idea of like, and I've done it too. Like whenever I do my dumb guy voice, lo and behold, I do a Southern accent and that's something I've tried to hold off yeah. on. And, and so like all of that, like just these, these other prejudice, everybody has some type of prejudice and it could be a regional prejudice, which is like, Oh, you're from the South. I immediately know everything you are unless you're from Savannah. Um, and, uh, and so that very much kind of is what Richard Jewell is about. And I think it does a great job of addressing it without making him into some kind of saint uh, there's such a specificity of writing and performance specifically with him and his mother. And I'd say Sam Rockwell that like really, really works for me. Um, it's a film that I think loves these characters too much to portray them as perfect. Mm. Uh, which is a, a thing that I, I, I like, I, I spoke too much about that. Uh, yes, you did. No, so. um, uh, do you, I'm not a big, I'm not like a Jeff Foxworthy fan, but you okay. reminded me of a Jeff Foxworthy bit about how this other accent does not inspire confidence. Oh, it, sure. And he talked about if you were consulting with a brain surgeon before surgery and he started <laughs> off. Now what we going to do is <laughs> you'd be a little nervous about your surgery. That's, that's about right. That's yeah. <laughs> um, so next up is the documentary memory, which is, uh, about the origins, uh, of alien. the origins of alien. And as I said, when I first saw it, uh, I didn't think it was necessary because it's a well-documented film and the making of it is well-documented, but the film gets it. It's not called the making of alien. It's called the origins of alien. So in some cases it goes deeper into the types of stories that alien is touching on. Um, and then it also talks about, um, the, the, the thematic aspect of it. And it, it's exactly the type of documentary about a movie that I like because, I, I can enjoy a making of, but I'm much more interested in, unsurprisingly, the critical aspect of it and really delving into what is it about this movie that resonates with people? Because it can't, it's not purely the horror. It's the type of horror that we're dealing with, the type of imagery we're dealing with. Um, and, 
yeah, I, it's just a really made, a really well-made film, and I feel like anybody that is a fan of that movie or a fan of movies would enjoy it. Next up is Hustlers, um, okay. which is a film that I enjoyed tremendously. I thought it was very funny. I thought there was a really nice, mo- really nice moments of drama, and it just has this, this this party mentality because these characters are doing this thing and they finally feel like they have agency in their own lives and they're excited about it. And I think the, the director is very, is pretty non-judgmental of what they're doing. Um, I don't think it's holding them up as like modern day Robin hoods, even though that's clearly how they're justifying themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, nor is it saying that they're, what they're doing is like the worst thing in the world. But then every once in a while things will start to go wrong and in that moment, you see like, oh, right, there are actual consequences here. Um, but I think the acting is is great all around. And if you'd, you know, if you'd ask me uh, if I thought uh, Lorraine uh, Scafari was capable of this type of movie with this type of editing and pacing, having seen uh, The Meddler, a film that I love, but a very different type of movie, I would have said like, no, I don't think she could do it. But it's it's really a well-made film. Next up is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Uh, which I'm, I'm a sucker for a whodunit and I'm an, I'm an even bigger sucker for a whodunit that is a, is a, a twist, Mm -hmm. not with a twist. They almost always have twists, but, uh, the way that where it's, it's a, he puts his own spin on this thing, uh, from a story standpoint, but also from a performance standpoint, uh, so that, just as, as Robert Altman said, the Gosford park was a, who cares whodunit, uh, (laughs) Knives Out is a, what is it? Someone did something, but is there even an it? Um, And I just love that. And it's so tightly plotted and tightly paced and still tremendous fun. And it's not airless. Uh, It it gives the characters room to breathe. And I really, really enjoyed it. And then my number 11 is The Lighthouse. Oh, we'll talk about it later. Okay. Um, (coughs) Uh... Caught me in the middle of. Uh, do you need to? Ta- do we t- need to take a break? Texting my wife. Um, uh, yes. Okay, we are back from the rare uh, announced break on Battle right. Engine. Usually, when we take a break, we try to hide it with an edit. But yeah, um, yeah, uh, everything's fine. It just it was a time sensitive thing that I needed to get back to my wife about. Uh, but it was a perfect time to take a break because now we are getting right into the heart That's of it. Right. We're actually starting with our top ten. Um, I will go uh, for. I could have used this whole time, the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what that's from? Yeah. Wait. Yes. The whole time you were the the whole time. It's a bad movie, but it's a, such a great ri- line read. Yeah, and by just, Sally Field. Is it Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah. Yes. When okay. she finds out, she goes. The whole time you were the whole t- the whole time. It's such a great, and you can watch just that on YouTube. <laughs> it's like a four second clip. Um, anyway, so I had all this time to look up who directed the movie. I, uh, rare for me, I have two documentaries in my top 10. Okay. As I feel like the, uh, sort of dominant form of documentaries becomes more and more insufferable to me. Sure. There are clearly others who feel the same way because I've seen more and more interesting takes on documentary, you know, um, not, you know, avoiding the, the, the talking head type of, uh, uh, not a documentary about the talking heads, which I would watch. Sure. Of course. But, uh, you know, the talking, as head long format. as they're not interviewed, uh, yes, yeah, as long as they're not interviewed, then <laughs> one um, by one, uh, 
And so uh, the the first on my list, uh, the, my ten number ten favorite movie of 2019 is Luke Lorenzen's Midnight Family, All which right. is a documentary about a family who own and operate a private am- ambulance in Mexico City, um, and a lot of their night is spent listening, uh, not unlike uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler, uh, listening for. Uh, news of accidents or car crashes or something and trying to get there as quickly as possible. Cause there are very few actual, uh, you know, Mexico city has, um, uh, public health care and private health care. There are very few public ambulances. So there are a lot of these sort of like, uh, the, these private ambulances that, that are out, uh, patrolling the streets every night and they have, so they, they hear a thing and they have to race to the scene because they need to get there before the other private ambulance. It's yeah. not, uh, there's no, there's no dispatch or anything. Everyone's just trying to get there first. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, so the movie, uh, if, Parts of it are kind of an action movie. Um, it's a it's a very small film crew. It's literally just the I think it's just the director holding the camera. I don't think mm-hmm. there's anyone else, uh, which allows him to get uh, a lot of sort of like on the move, very intimate moments. Um, you also see. It, it, I think the movie is a would make a good companion piece to Parasite because you, it's about a it's about a very poor family yeah. um, who are not bad people, but sometimes like in situations where they do things that are unethical, you know, a lot of what they're doing is like, you know, if you've got someone who's bleeding to death in your ambulance, you should take them to the nearest hospital, right? Well, what if the, you'll get a better rate if you take them to Hmm. uh, a different hospital, you know, that sort of thing, um, uh, comes up, um, all in a, in a fleet. I think I used the word fleet twice now, but it, that's how the movie feels a fleet, uh, 81 minutes, um, and it's also speaking of documentaries I don't like. Uh, there are so many documentaries that I, I talked about this in a recent movie journal of American Factory that I politically, morally, ethically, socially agree with, and yet get turned off by how strident and preachy they are. Yeah, Midnight Family I think is uh, an argument. It's an anti-libertarian argument I think without actually yelling that at you. It's just sort of like here's what this kind of uh, approach to business and free market uh, actually looks like an action and that it's not the, the uh, it's not the best for a lot of people. Um, and I think it makes that case in a very uh, naturalistic illustrative way without ever shouting anything like that <laughs> at you. It leaves you to infer that that's uh, uh, what's going on here. So that's uh, number 10, uh, 10, my 10th favorite movie of the year. All right. And uh, one of two documentaries. My number 10 is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, listeners know that uh, when I first watched the movie, I did not have a great response to it. I thought it was fine. Um, but it stayed with me to such an extent that I rewatched it. And it's it's like I kind of saw it with, with new eyes. Because the first time I just saw it, like I was just so pulled into like there's De Niro and there's Pacino and there's Pesci and Keitel and this person getting shot in the face and that part, you know, like I, 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 I was so wrapped Not up in Beansy from the Sopranos. Is that, I guess that's a spoiler that Beansy from the Sopranos oh, yeah. got shot in the face. If you remember who Beansy was, uh, yeah. and it's yeah. also relative within 
in Irishman terms, it's pretty early in the movie. Pretty, yeah, exactly. It's like less yeah. than an hour into the movie. Also, you come to realize that like the idea of somebody being sh- uh, violently murdered is not a spoiler at all. Uh, they spoil <laughs> things that aren't going to be in the movie. That's um, right. yeah. But, uh, I think the first time I watched it, I was thinking only about how it was similar to other Scorsese films. Cause I think by the time I saw it, so many people were talking on, Hey, this is a reflection on his previous work. Uh, whereas the second time I was thinking about how different it is, it still has that, that sense of vitality that you find in his movies. But because it's somebody telling this story and we see them, uh, you know, we see De Niro, he's old, he's in this nursing home and he's telling this story. So it's like, okay, now it's, now the narration isn't simply a way to something to hang the film on. Now it's like, okay, now the, per, it's a real care, a, a full on character that is, uh, that we see his face as he's narrating. We keep cutting back to him. So it's like, all right, we are meant to see all of this in retrospect. Uh, and that's when you start to notice like, yes, it still has a lot of the hallmarks, but its pacing, its tone is so much more, I won't say nihilistic, but it's more, it, it's, it's the musings of someone being like, what was I doing? What was I even doing and why? I don't even really know. I only know that, that it, it ruined my life. You know, like my, my family doesn't talk to me anymore, not in any kind of real way. And here, and everyone that I was loyal to is gone. Um, <clears throat> And so I came to really appreciate what Scorsese was doing and what he wasn't doing, that it could have been so easy for him to just try to make another Martin Scorsese gangster movie. But instead, he says, I'm going to make a Martin Scorsese gangster movie filtered through, let's say, Coppola and like that kind of at times operatic, uh, inherently tragic, you know, playing the end all throughout, um, quality to it. And, and that really changed the way I, I saw the film. Like when you, when you watch everything, knowing what the final 45 minutes will be, uh, it, it mm-hmm. really changes everything. And you come to yeah. realize just yeah. how sad and pointless and ugly. And you get, you get some of that with Goodfellas and casino and that sort of thing. But like, it all just seems so, so like such a waste, you know, and I don't think the character himself ever thinks, wow, my life was a real waste, but I think the film thinks that. And the longer the film is, the more of a waste it is like, Oh, three and a half hours. Imagine an actual life mm-hmm. and, and thinking back on it and realizing I didn't do anything good with it. In fact, only bad really. Mm. Uh, and it's, I, I really, I, I love I love any time a director is willing to look back at their career, and I don't think Scorsese is like condemning Goodfellas. Like he condemns those characters perfectly well in that film, but I think he's like, okay, well, I'm an older person now, and I've lived more life, and so let's revisit this. And that's how I feel about like Clint Eastwood when he made Unforgiven or Mystic River. Um, it's how I feel about Tarantino this year with once upon a time in Hollywood. Like you get these directors who've been around for a while and it's like, let's, let's go, let's rather than simply move on or try to recreate, let's reassess. Uh, and that's what I feel like this film is. And within that, it is still a really well-written, well-acted film. And I really, 
responded to it, but it took two times to get hmm. there. All right, number which nine. Which is a sizable time commitment. Yes. Yeah. Uh, number nine for me. All right. Um, in my uh, lead up to, to announcing this, I'm going to, uh, slight spoiler for an upcoming Patreon episode okay. we've recorded that hasn't released, but we did our, we, every month we do a, uh, pick a year at random and do our top five of that year. And we did our top five of 1995 mm-hmm. and I was, I won't say where it fell, but on my top five was clueless, mm-hmm. which I feel like is the type of movie that probably like within the year it comes out. You're like, Oh yeah, that was great. Obviously it's not, going to be in my top 10 of the year and then but then you look you know uh 25 years later and you realize how much you love the movie and how important it is so i feel like this is not a movie that i've seen in a lot of top 10s i've seen i have seen it in a couple but i do think it's going to go down in the pantheon of all-time great uh um concert movie concert documentary movies along with like the last waltz and stop making sense and that's homecoming a film by beyonce directed by beyonce and ed burke um this is one of those movies that I, uh, uh, I know you've had this experience. I, I, I called it up on, on, on Netflix and threw it on late at night, expecting to watch some of it and finish it the next day. Yeah. And it's a full, like, it's, like, it's like two hours and 20 minutes long. And I just watched the whole thing in one sitting because it's, uh, it's so addictive. It's so vibrant. It's so fun. It's so full of life. Um, it's also so, uh, it's such an achievement in the sense that it's, it's a it's a concert, but it's cut together from two different performances, um, in which the uh, dancers wear different colors in each performance. So there's, uh, you know, there'll be really cool shots where like the dancers all jump up in the air and turn around, and then it'll cut to like perfectly cut to a shot that's from a different night, and suddenly oh, yeah. their all their costumes are purple instead of gold or whatever. That it's, sounds so great. It's, there's cool stuff like that, but also there's a whole lot of like backstage stuff and like especially the. Because uh, this was such a huge production, the the Coachella performances that um, it took the better part of a year to to plan and stage and coordinate and and choreograph and rehearse, and so there's a lot of footage of that process. And yet, the way that Beyonce and Ed Burke cut it together, those parts feel like part of the. There's a musicality to yeah. the more quote unquote documentary parts that never the spell is never broken, even yeah. while you're in in those in those moments. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly one of the most watchable movies of the year. And I do think that give it, give it a quarter century, like we did with clueless. Uh, and I think we'll realize that this is, uh, this movie's reputation has only, has only grown. All right. What was it called again? It's called homecoming. homecoming. The, the official title is homecoming a film by Beyonce. All right. Which yeah, I also, that reminds me at Sundance. I saw the, uh, Taylor Swift documentary, mm-hmm. Uh, which is called Miss Americana, <coughs> except officially it's called Taylor Swift colon Miss Americana. But I'm never going to call it that. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's just Miss Americana. Who's got the time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, next for me, uh, it was in your honorable mentions, is Ari Aster's Midsummer. Um, I... I really liked, really responded to Hereditary. I think I like Midsummer more. Oh, I definitely. Um, I, I was not a big. I was a right. Hereditary skeptic, uh, but I really loved Midsummer. There's a lot. I'll say this: there's a lot that I love about Hereditary, um, and yet it, it it definitely felt more like a just a series of vignettes. And you could see that as well with Midsummer, but at sure. the same time, it feels like it's all tied together, maybe just through a general sense of place. Um, whereas, you know, we're dealing with 
often the house in Hereditary, but here you're in this other. It, it just it feels like this weird fairy tale land um, where it's like daytime all the time, yeah. and you feel like you're stepping into uh, you know Hansel and Gretel in more ways than one. By the way, the idea that you are that there are people who just see, who they know how everything works. And you yourself, maybe maybe more like Alice in Wonderland, and then our yeah, characters, good, yeah. our characters are just mo- just modern American twenty uh, somethings stepping into a different what a, would appear to be a different time, a different place. Uh, everything about it is surreal, and it's shot that way. It feels that way. On one hand, it feels so refreshing because the daylight is just so. Uh, so exciting and, and life giving only to discover that it is uh, quite the opposite. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily day all the time. We do see, we do see things happen at it, night, but well, I don't not, know how much night there is. And even the night is not, it's more dusk. Right. Yeah, even like at the darkest it gets, it's still right. not, you, you think about when, uh, is it William Jackson Harper? Yeah. 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 When he sneaks into like exactly. the, the library or whatever, it's not really dark, yeah. dark. It's, and you know what? It's dark for this movie. Like when yeah. I think of it, I think of it as particularly dark, but it really isn't. Uh, and so it's, you could do a great, uh, double feature of midsummer and session nine as daylight horror movies. And, and I never saw session nine, but, uh, yeah, ex- with the exception of the part when they're in the basement yeah. it's, uh, and the, there's no windows, it's light. The entire movie. You could throw insomnia in there. Not that it's a horror movie, but it's right. uh, definitely suspense. Um, and so, so I like so much about just how it managed to be surreal and yet pretty straightforward uh, in its in in the way that it's shot and in its style. But also, I really love uh, these characters because they are like the characters that we're not really on board with. They're just, they're not bad people to the degree that anybody is good or bad, but like they're not conventional bad movie characters, you know, they're just like, ah, they're a little bit selfish, but they're, they also putting, they're putting in some effort. Uh, I'm talking specifically about her boyfriend, like he's putting in some effort, but probably not as much as he should or as much as she requires. Yeah. Um, and I think Florence Pugh, she's just in this place in her life, having just lost her entire family, uh, in a really horrific way and a way that she undoubtedly feels like she could have prevented. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, I don't think she pro- I don't actually think she could have. No, sure um, yeah. and so her whole life is just in this tailspin. And so to be feeling this in this bright, sunny, seemingly joyous place, and then to see that, like, oh, no, there are reminders of death all over the place, including very real ones. And it's it's the kind of horror movie, yes, it owes a lot to Wicker Man and that sort of thing, but and maybe even a little bit to Rosemary's Baby now that I think about it. But uh, it's it's very much the kind of horror movie that I like. I like that it's – it's keep commenting on the length of movies. I like that it's nice and long. It lets you really live in this world. Yeah. And I haven't um, seen the director's cut, which is like 20 minutes long. I know. I, and I'm eager to, yeah. uh, although also not because it's not always the most pleasant film. And I like but, that they, they even hint at like the person like writing the law is like this heavily 
inbred uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, character that it, it, you're not even really allowed to meet him. You just know that he's there and you know that he's really misshapen and all that. And you're like, man, this, and it's just little touches like that, that bring in the real, you know, but, to talk about it as a fairy tale, like the idea that there is real ugliness within this pristine world. As much as horror, horrific things happen in the movie, I actually am eager to rewatch it because there's something, I think what hereditary was missing is that there's something enchanting about the movie. Sure. Certainly the, the, the music helps the mm-hmm. it's beautiful music and the, the film itself is kind of musical and like, there's a lot of parts where they're singing or chanting yeah. or things like that. Um, and so that helps like establish a rhythm for each of these, uh, uh, set pieces. You call them vignettes in hereditary. I do think you can break this movie down into certain like, uh, set pieces, but, um, but it, it holds together. It didn't. Yeah. It was in my honorable mentions. Hey, I just said honorable. Without you sure did. I just need to not think about it. Um, not my top 10 because I think Ariaster Ari still has some trouble, uh, ending, movies um i don't know uh, i seem to recall you like the ending more than i do I, like, I i i think it's the right ending but my problem is that he's so good at starting movies well that's kicking sure. movies off with uh almost incomprehensible terrible things happening that yeah. it sets a bar that he can't seem to get back to sure so it's like I feel like in another movie, what happens at the end of Midsummer is like, oh my God, I can't believe it went there. Yeah. But the problem is the movie went there in a different way, you know, yeah. six minutes in. Yeah. And then once the story is really kicking in, like it goes there about every 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I really liked it. All right. Um, so it's my turn next, yes. right? My number eight. Is that what we're on? Yep. My number eight. Uh, and I, uh, <laughs> Pardon me if I forget anything because it's been over a year since I've seen it, uh, but it's Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, okay. which is uh, an autobiographical, semi-autobiographical film um, in which uh, Honor Swintonburn plays Honor Swintonburn plays uh, a twenty-something uh, film student in 1980s London, which is what Joanna Hogg was at that time. Sure, uh, but it's. Um, it's it's also about a uh, relationship, a sort of doomed uh, relationship. We realize it's doomed probably a little bit before the main character does, and that's actually that sort of dramatic irony or situational irony. I forget which I think it's dramatic irony is when you know something the character doesn't. I can't remember what the term for that is. I don't remember. Um, but that's very much a part of the movie, and this is a movie about that is we're. I, I think we're supposed to be looking at this person there's a reason it's set in the past because we're supposed to be thinking about, uh, who will this person become? What lessons will they learn? And a lot of what the movie is about people that age in that situation, especially this woman in particular who comes from, uh, a lot of financial privilege. They think they know a lot about the world Hmm. and, uh, the two sort of storylines in the movie, her trying to make her thesis film and, uh, her falling in love with and having a, um, pretty rocky relationship with this, uh, this government official, uh, played by Tom Burke, um, both illustrate that she doesn't know shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the movie doesn't, isn't like smug or looking down at her either. It's very humanistic. It's very sympathetic. Um, and it, part of that is that Honor Swintonburn is great. It's a great performance and, and Tom Burke is, is fantastic, uh, as well. So it's, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a movie that, uh, it, Maybe if I had been in my 20s when I saw it, I might uh, have thought about it differently. Sure. But I think um, being able to look back and being able to... Because I, 
I sometimes beat myself up about how dumb I used to be. And right. like, I, I, I get in my own head about like, I can't believe I said that, especially since you and I have been talking on recording on a microphone for 13, almost 13 years now. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about like, there's like dumb opinions that I have that are like, uh, you know, recorded for posterity and like I've said or thought dumb things or whatever. Um, and I feel like the souvenir is a movie that uh, almost therapeutically helps me go like, yeah, we were all dumber when we were younger. Yeah. And the point is to just keep getting, trying to be better. Yeah. And the idea of like, I'm probably pretty dumb now. Yes. That's uh, a big part of it. Yeah. And just like, am I as smart as I, not, not necessarily, you know, book smart or anything like that, but like, am I as intelligent as I am able to be right now at this point yeah. with the information I have? And, uh, that's kind of the most you can hope for because 10 years from now you'll be like, I can't believe I said that when I was in my late thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, all right. Next for me, number eight is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a film I did not expect to like when I went into it. Uh, but it is, it, it won me over, not unlike, you know, the main character is won over to Mr. Rogers side. Um, <clears throat> but not without considerable effort. That's one of the things that I really come away from is that, and one of the other, and uh, Roger's wife says this about him uh, in the film, which is like, yeah, his trying to see the best in people and his like really being curious about other people. It, it, it's, he's not a superhero. It doesn't come naturally. He has to work at it. And, and that's so much of, of this film is about like in some ways demythologizing Mr. Rogers and people like him. You know, there are people that we all agree that most of us agree on. Like we're all in favor of Martin Luther King. Understandably. So we're all in favor of, uh, Fred Rogers. And so it's like, yes, but they, they were just people at one point mm-hmm. and they, in fact, they, they were the entire time, but their status and their reputation and their actions have, have taken on a life of their own. And that is what defines these people. But at the same time, they're still people. And so I feel like it's such an interesting, so it's such an interesting choice to have this film, to have Mr. Rogers be a supporting role in this film, because uh, while it would be neat to see how he arrived at this place, it's a film that's interested in like, let's engage with his reputation. Let's engage with his persona and then work and then work a little bit backwards. And you see that he is working at it, but there are some negative aspects to it as well. And so we have our surrogate character, um, responding to him the way we probably would. And unlike a movie like my week with Marilyn, where we have a surrogate character in Eddie Redmayne, but there's really nothing to him. He's just there to be our in point. But this is a film that's all about seeing people as entire beings. So our in point isn't going to be dismissed either. None of the characters are dismissed. They're all, the film invites us to see them the way Mr. Rogers has worked very hard to see other people, which is not merely a help or a hindrance to us, but they've got their own wounds. They've got their own strengths. Uh, and yeah, maybe they hurt us. Maybe they hurt us to a point where they can't be in our lives anymore, but chances are they've been hurt as well. And at least recognizing that, again, they still might not, they still might be toxic people and they can't get past their own wounds. And that's an unfortunate thing, but like you can grieve that for them while also stepping away. Um, 
And that's just from a thematic standpoint. Stylistically, Mariel Heller takes what could have just been a, very, a fairly straightforward stylistic film, and she does amazing things with it, essentially infusing the film with the essence of, again, mm. Mr. Rogers, rather than just hey, here's a bunch of stuff that happened. Like, there's that thing that we've seen him do like at, at uh, award ceremonies where he says, we're going to have a moment, a minute of silence for you to think about the people that yeah. got you where. They have that in the film, and the film takes a full minute. Did you see the movie? I haven't seen it, no. It takes a full minute, and I, I, I don't necessarily want to spoil this, but I'll say it anyway because the movie's been out for a while. Uh, he's doing this with the other character. They're just sitting in a, uh, they're just sitting in a coffee shop and the care, the character played by Matthew Reese, he is silent. And then slowly the entire cafe gets silent mm. in a way that is not organic in a way that's like the movie's doing this. Right. And then we see a close up of Mr. Rogers staring at Matthew Reese. And then he quickly, not quickly, he slowly moves his eyes to until he's looking at us and just stays looking at us for the rest of that moment of silence. It's a, and moments like that, like that's very bold, Mm -hmm. but I think that they earn it because they're really trying to do more than just have a biopic. They're trying to get to the core of who Mr. Rogers is both as a person and the persona. I really, really enjoyed it. All right. uh, Don't get comfortable. Okay. Because my number seven is a hidden life. We'll get there. Yeah. My number seven is under the silver lake, uh, a film that I just watched and, uh, I loved it so much. It is in many ways an imperfect film, but I don't think it is. I don't think the stuff that I would view as an imperfection is the stuff that other people would view as an imperfection. I think a lot of people, when I read reviews, they said like, there's a film. It's not really about anything. It's meandering. Uh, you know, it goes down these various paths that don't really go anywhere. It's like, no, those are not what's wrong with it. And, and the stuff that I would say is wrong with it are actually like little picky points. Um, the director is actively, showing us a character who has no idea where he's going. I I genuinely think that this is a film about millennialism. Okay. That he, he feels passionately about things. He will pursue things if he cares about them. Uh, but in those pursuits and then those passions, that's where he finds his identity. And over the course of the film, some of the things that he's used to define himself are stripped away and he cannot deal with that. And so he's, he pursues this line of thinking or he pursues that passion also that he can feel like there's some type of meaning to his life. And none of that is actually said. It's just there in the performance. It's there in what the character is doing. You know, the character himself seems, I mean, he cares about things, uh, but he seems sort of perpetually at arm's length, uh, not self-consciously aloof, but just that he, that he just can't muster up the type of energy that is required even to investigate uh, a young girl who's, who's missing that he felt a real connection with. Um, it's, the film is, is once again to talk about the length, the film is long as it should be because it's all about this character who is just wandering through life. Uh, and then occasionally that wandering has a specific direction, but it doesn't necessarily add too much of an, uh, an uh, element of uh, urgency. Um, and I look at that film and I think like, well, what do I define myself by? Um, 
And is that, and what would happen if those things were taken away? Or if somebody said, Hey, uh, incidentally, that thing that was so important to you really wasn't that important for the most, for the most part. Or, you know, in our case, uh, you know, we love movies and movies are a big part of who we are. It's not the only thing, but it's a big part of who we are. And so like, imagine everything that I just said about say a beautiful day in the neighborhood and like how much it means to me and what I think the director Mm -hmm. is communicating. And then the director says like, no, that's just a paycheck for me. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you and I still feel like, yeah, but paycheck or not, you still explored something even if you didn't mean to. So you and I feel that way. But like, it would lose a little something if the person was just like, yeah, I was just kind of just kind of jerking off on film. It was a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, and so there are moments in this film that feel like that. And so it's a character who's just kind of. I feel like any number of people uh, probably in college and in their twenties, this character is in his early thirties, but like can watch this. And even though the story can be surreal and horrific and funny and all these things, uh, at the core of it is I think a very real identity crisis that seems to be happening earlier and earlier in people's lives. Do you, what do you think is a better movie about millennials under the silver lake or get a job? <laughs> I didn't even see get a job. But I, I know. I, I know you did. I, I did, and it. I did not care for it. Yeah. Uh, why did you? T- I'm talking about a movie I like. Why are you ruining this for me? Now I'm always going to associate the two. Uh, well, then my work here is done. Um, except that I still have six more movies to talk about. Number six for me is Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Okay. Uh, uh, it, in a very, it's a very different movie from Little Women, but it's a, uh, it's an, it's a, similarly a movie that I find hard to separate out the, the 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 little things that I like about it from the, just the overall experience of it. Um, it's a Robert Eggers is a horror director, and I do think this is a horror movie, even though it's not like scary, scary, except for there are a couple parts mm-hmm. that, that scary mermaid. Um, but, uh, it's a horror movie in that it's uh, about two people uh, losing their minds. It's, yeah. a, it's a psychological horror movie, except that a lot of that psychology in an expressionist way, expressionistic way is spilled out, yeah. uh, onto, into their, their surroundings on the Island and inside the cabin. Um, it's also, I did not expect it to be as consistently hilarious as it is. I laughed so much. Almost like just for me, just on the edge of too much. Okay. Like if it were just, I, I, this is a random percentage. If it were like 12% funnier, it's like, this is now a comedy. Right. That is occasionally creepy. Uh, but no, like when dealing with, people going with characters going insane, there's going to be a silliness to it and a goofiness to it, uh, underneath that, that is not underneath that, like that is a that accompanies the, the true horror of not being able to trust your own mind anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's not standing outside of that and letting us just watch other people go insane. It kind of feels like going insane because there are things in the movie that I can't fully explain. Like, what was he doing there? Or what is it like? There, there are things yeah. that don't maybe on repeat viewings, it would make sense, but the things about the movie that didn't uh, like make traditional sense to me, yeah. but I feel like that's by design because it's a movie about yeah. madness. Um, I find that so exhilarating. Like mm-hmm. the, when the film came out, like I'm part of 
various Facebook groups and there are people that said like, Oh, I was really excited to see it, especially having seen the witch. And then they saw it and they said like that movie, you know, that wasn't really about anything. Yeah. And like, they're like, oh, I just felt like it was just weird for the sake of weird and all that sort of thing. And there's by film people. And I remember being like, yeah, I guess I see what you're saying. And yet somehow it is, it's about a, it's a very experiential film. Mm. It's the experience of, not trusting the world anymore, not trusting other people, not trusting yourself yeah. and just getting and just pulling and the film just pulls you further and further into that until you're right there with the character yep. and you don't want to be. And, uh, yeah, a couple of other things. The, the score is fantastic. Sure. Um, it has uh, minor spoiler because I remember. Uh, so I have this. My my wife is so averse to seeing animals die in movies that mm-hmm. uh, there'll be times I'm watching a movie and an animal die, will die and be like, "Well, I can't recommend this to Natalie now." Yeah. So I told her I was like, "Yeah, there's a pretty uh, 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 not it's not grisly, but a pretty blatant, uh, horrible animal death in the yes. movie." And she was like, "Yeah, I can't watch." It. I was like, "But it's a seagull," and she was like, "Oh, maybe I could watch a seagull get killed, <laughs> like because seagulls are." pests and they're annoying and that's the role that the seagull plays in this movie is that it's fucking annoying and birds by the by their nature are kind of impersonal (laughs) um uh uh, another thing um we don't think generally when we think about movies with uh stunts we're not thinking about movies like the lighthouse but yeah uh, one of my favorite single stunts of the year is when robert pattinson uh, when the rope breaks, when he's whitewashing the side of the lighthouse and yeah. it's a great looking stunt. Yeah. Uh, so props to that stunt team, uh, who did that. And, uh, yeah, I, this happens every, uh, a couple times every year whenever we do these top tens, I cannot wait to watch the lighthouse again. Like yeah. I want to go home and watch it tonight. Yeah. Uh, and also one of the things that it's about is, when just as a function of your job, you wind up getting stuck with someone that you would never want to hang out with. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been there and I'm just like, you know, you show up for your shift, uh, at uh, video update and there's, I guess I shouldn't say his name. Yeah. Don't, but there he is Uh with his terrible mullet and his (laughs) terrible jokes. And you're like, ah, fuck, there's going to be a long six hours anyway. Okay. Uh, let's see. We're at number six? Yeah. All right. Don't get too comfortable, David. Okay. My number six is Uncut Gems. Yeah, that'll come up later. Yeah. Uh, so my number five, the most most recent addition to, addition to this list, because I just watched it the other night, uh, and I forgot to look up the director's name. Uh, well, now I have to look up the director's name. See, I wasn't prepared because... Uh, because um, you thought I was going to be talking for a while? Yeah. Uh, Sorry about that. The way you do. It's uh, <laughs> a joke. Uh Carol Mikanovsky's Give Me Liberty, mm-hmm. number five movie of the year. Um, it's uh, uh, another movie that, like, um, it's very, it actually has a lot of similarities to Midnight Family and a lot of differences from Midnight Family, one of them being it's not a documentary like Midnight Family, mm-hmm. but it's also very uh, shoot from the hip, very sort of loosely, like, uh, it, it does seem like half the time that the camera operator is just trying to keep up. Yeah. Um, uh, so it has, it has some of that like midnight family, but it's also like midnight family in that you can point to specific things about, um, uh, the, the modern day, like social experience of people who are lower class economically, people who are immigrants mm. and stuff like that without ever like being really like, 
overtly about that. In fact, it kind of sneaks up. I, 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 uh, I feel like I'm repeating myself because we just talked about this movie on the movie journal. Yeah, yeah. But there's, uh, it takes place in Milwaukee, and the day of the movie, the movie takes place in one day. The day of the movie, there is a protest outside the police station because of the police shooting. We don't really get all the details. You can sort of, from recent events from the past few years, you can probably guess what happened. We don't really know. Um, and the way that that those protests work into the plot is like almost an afterthought. And then it's like, Oh shit, this guy who drives this van for a living, uh, is going to be late. Cause he has to go a long way around this neighborhood because the streets are blocked off. And then like they get clo- like over the course of the movie, this protest becomes more a part of the movie, but it never, uh, is a movie. It's not like the hate you give, which is a movie that is overtly about this kind mm-hmm. of like uh, protest and this kind of citizenship, uh, and, and, and civil, you know, responsibility, uh, type of thing it's it's not overtly about that it's most it's about this guy's I, i'm glad i just used the word responsibility because i realized that's what the movie is about that uh you've got this this guy chris gallist is the actor he's like he's a 25 year old uh his parents and grandparents he lives with his parents and grandparents uh they're from russia um he lives in an apartment in an apartment building that's essentially all Russian immigrants. And his job is that he drives a van for a service that uh, picks up people with disabilities who can't drive or whatever and takes them to where they need to go. And the day of the movie, uh, while, while he's trying to do that, there's also a bunch of the Russian women from his building. One of them has died in the funeral is that day, and none of them have a ride. So he decides to take these Russian ladies out to the cemetery while he's making all his pickups and drop-offs. And it's very, very stressful. Um, and so the movie, uh, to go back to what I said about responsibility, he has a job. That's his responsibility. He's also a part of a community by being, uh, by being a Russian American, um, in this building. That's essentially all Russian Americans. He, has a he feels that he has a responsibility that to that community and then of course like i said the movie's scope keeps expanding so there are questions then about what's his uh experience to the community at at large there's a part earlier in the movie where he um he one of the women he picks up uh um is black and lives in a neighborhood that's uh, mostly black people and he refers to it to talking to her, he refers to it as your neighborhood in a way that you're like, Ooh, that seems a little charged, a little weighty. But then these two characters come to, to spend more time together over the course of the movie. And, and we see more. So, uh, there's a lot of great stuff going on in under the surface that I'm talking about, but just on the surface, the movie is, endlessly watchable because it's just constantly, it's like an uncut gems type of thing. He constantly has to go from one and it's like balancing, juggling all these things. It has a, uh, unstoppable forward momentum. Uh, it's often very, very funny, uh, at the same time. Uh, it's, uh, absolutely, uh, an astounding achievement. I look forward to more films from Kirill Mikanovsky and I look forward to more films starring Chris Gallist and Lolo Spencer is the, the black woman that I was talking about, both of whom are making their film debuts in this film and are, are fantastic. All right. That's so my number five, my number five is Ad Astra. Okay. Uh, which really stayed with me, uh, after watching it, it's, a it's a science fiction movie almost begrudgingly um because at its core it's really just the story about this 
man who grew up without a father. Uh, he assumed that his father had died uh, in the line of duty, here being uh, space exploration. Uh, come to find out that his father is alive and might actually be threatening the universe uh, in, in either a roundabout or a very purposeful way. And so they recruit this, this man played by Brad Pitt to go out into the outer reaches and uh, find and talk to his father. So... <clears throat> So that's what it's about is these and people have compared it to Apocalypse Now, which is like he's just sort of a passenger along these various flights and various trips mm-hmm. on his way to see this one uh, uh, enigmatic and destructive figure. Um, the difference here is that the fig, he has a personal connection to this figure. And so one thing that I really like about the movie is that one could say it's a pretty it's pretty unemotional. And what I would say is it's preoccupied in the same way that there have been times when real life intrudes on the things that you have to do and you still do those things and you might even do them well, but you are not there. You're not, you, your mind is elsewhere. Your mind is on, you know, in my case, like the argument that I had with Jen, but I can't resolve it right now because I have to go teach students. So I have to like, and, and this maybe uh, my, preoccupation comes across to the students. Maybe it doesn't, I don't really Uh know, but like, but it's hard to be passionate about the things you're doing when you have that going on. And the film could be seen as very cold, very dry, very passionless. And it's not that there's that it's actually roiling with emotion, but a very specific type of emotion, um, that is paired with confusion. You know, uh, Brad Pitt, it's like, Oh, I thought like I'd gotten used to how things are, uh, and which is to say my dad is not a part of my life and now he is, and I have to go see him, but approach him kind of as a potential enemy, which he already, which now that I know that he's been alive this whole time, no problem. I kind of see him as the enemy and yet someone I so badly need something from. So it's this idea of, of connection with another person while also, his father so badly wants to find his meaning in space exploration, discovering new things, discovering life, all of these things like his, his head is in the clouds. You could say that his goal, you could say it's a religious type goal, uh, or the, the desire to matter in this world and be bigger than and just being an individual. Uh, and in the, and over the course of the film, it, it's this idea that like, yeah, we might be those things in the long run and that's great. But in the end, like the, how we treat one another individually and the connections we make individually, that's, that's what they're going, what people are going to live with. Like I find myself wondering, not that I think my, uh, not that I think my students think of me as uh, some great thing, but I think of like, if I, like when I go home or if I, uh, you know, as I'm driving back from the college, having, uh, probably looked like I know what I'm talking about when in regards to movies. And then I go and then like, I get coffee at a gas station and I go to drink it, realize it's too cold. And I get, and I get angry and throw it out the window, <laughs> uh, uh, along the two ten. Um, 
It's like, <laughs> that's, that's just as much a part of me yeah. as any of the quote unquote, like great, big, more high, high profile, more, more public, uh, aspects of myself. And so, uh, these, these small connections, these moments of humanity, that's what really, that's who we really are. And so that's from a thematic, from a character standpoint, that's what I love about Ad Astra. But also I just, I just love in some ways how matter of fact the space exploration stuff is while also still these characters are like, you know, they're touching the cosmos at every moment and there's some level of awe there, but it's still their job and they've got stuff to do. And that the, the, the juxtaposition of those two things is something that I think frustrated a lot of people. Uh, they thought uh, based on reviews and audience scores and that sort of thing, like they wanted it to be something probably closer to interstellar, which was definitely a very emotional film. Yeah. yeah. And this is not that it is, it but is. every, but very much under the surface. Yeah. Until the parts when it comes out where it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. The part where, uh, not to spoilers, but where Brad Pitt, who's very much a, you know, by the book military. Yes, yeah. man. The part when he does something other than what he's supposed to do. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. Uh, very emotional. Yeah. Also the, uh, the opening sequence is an all timer. It's yeah. So, it's like scary and beautiful and so thrilling. much, so much about the film. I'm very glad that I saw it in the theater. I, 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 re- I realize that these days people don't talk much about the cinematic experience. Uh, but this is a film that seems so small and intimate, but still has yeah. Uh, yeah. a huge scale. Okay. My number four is Celine Sciamma's portrait of a lady on fire. Okay. Um, so many, uh, when there are, <laughs> When there are bad period pieces, um, which I feel like I have gotten good at avoiding. I feel like I see mostly good period pieces, but I know when there's a bad one. Yeah. And a lot of times when there's a bad one, like, uh, I don't know why this movie comes to mind. It's like almost 10 years old, but Hysteria. I don't know if you ever saw that that movie. Is Um, it that old? uh, It's like 2011, I think, 2012, um, which is eight or nine years old. I guess that's pretty old now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bad period movies feel like they take place inside like a snow globe or whatever. Yeah. Like it feels so fake. A snow globe that we are usually judging because we know the past. But I mean, it doesn't feel like you don't believe these characters are characters. You believe they're people playing dress up in like sets or whatever. Good period pieces feel tactile, feel like you're, you're there and like you can, uh, you, you, you can touch and interact with these people. And, Portrait of Lady on Fire is absolutely that, even though so much of its photography is almost otherworldly in its in its beauty, mm-hmm. it still feels like a, a real fully conceived place. It helps that the... Yeah, I've heard uh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Um, it helps that uh, you've got um, Noemi, Noemi Merlant, Adele Hanel, you've got um, uh, uh, Valeria, Valeria Golina, and then the other... Um, there's... There are other characters in the movie, but it's really it's mostly just these four women. Um, uh, Luana Bajrami is the the one who plays the maid. Um, they're all great mm-hmm. and great together, so uh, so so that helps. Um, but really, like I said, it's four, but it's really down to the main two uh, women, Naomi Merlant and Adele Hanel. This is a uh, this movie is a, a, a romance. It's um, I remember saying this on the Tiff Rahub episode with Angie, which you, you weren't uh, present for that. Um, Cause I saw this at Tiff and I also saw Pablo Lorraine's Emma at Tiff and Pablo Lorraine's Emma is a movie that has 
lots and lots of sex in it, but it's not a sexy movie. Mm-hmm. Portrait of Lady on Fire has very little actual like sex, but it feels like so erotically charged sure. throughout. Um, in a way that I um, don't feel gross saying, <laughs> by the yeah. way. Um, I think it's a very sex-positive, sexy movie. Um, and uh, uh, But it's also it's also a romance, and it's also a movie, you know, it's called Portrait of a Lady on, on Fire. It's about a portrait artist painting a portrait of, of someone um, who's not supposed to be on fire. Um, but uh, so much of the movie's... I don't know, metaphor or motif or whatever is about just, just looking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not that the idea is that, well, there's a difference between, I guess, looking at someone or something and actually like regarding them, you know? Sure. And so I think that's, this is a movie that's, there's obviously there's dialogue in it. They talk to each other, but I think they fall in love with one another because they spend so much time looking at each yeah. other. And I think that's the part of the, the, the idea the movie's sort of metaphor is that love between two people happens when you can really see them. Mm-hmm. So sure. it's a, uh, it's beautiful. Uh, I know you had my screener for a little bit. You never got to it. <laughs> Did I have it? it? It was in the neon. Oh, book. That's right. It was in the neon book. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Because it's all one, one thing because it's part of that whole package. Yeah. Like I never, I never think to like open it, uh, <laughs> because it's like, well, surely if it were a movie like portrait of lady on fire, which getting, which is getting such critical, uh, acclaim, yeah. surely they would package it separately. Um, I don't know why I think that. Well, but they did for Parasite. Parasite was in, that's true, in the neon book, and they sent a separate screener. That's right. Sorry, I've, this is, we're getting really behind. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Inside Baseball. For screener season every year, neon releasing or whatever, the neon pictures or whatever, instead of sending out individual screeners, they send out <coughs> a sort of the very nice, like fun, oh, like, sure. bound uh, books with all of the uh, the screeners like as sleeves uh, in them. They've done this three or four years in a row now. Um but uh, yeah, Tyler forgot to look at the portrait yeah. of the on fire one, <laughs> and that was that was a higher priority one. But I think for some reason it just I just didn't think I had it. Mm. Uh, strange as that is. Okay, um, so we're into number four. Okay, so number four for me. You know, ever since we started these uh, movie journals, which at this point is many years ago. Uh, I do feel like I lose some of the thunder uh, for the uh, the top ten because my number four is a film that I just watched and just talked about on the movie journal, right, which is yeah. Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. Um, well, the difference now is that I've seen it, which I had not seen true, it when yes. we did the last movie journal. So now we can uh, uh, have some repartee. About that's it. true. Um, yeah, it's a film that, uh, as I mentioned, I was I was reluctant to go into because I thought it would uh, activate my own insecurities, and to a certain extent, it did. But one thing that I that I like is that you know uh, to to once again go back to the the con- the familiar refrain that we say that like. The more specific you get, the more universal something can be. Um, and I agree with that. Um, and yet when it comes to relationships, like the specific, the specifics of these, of this couple's relationship, it is something that you can extrapolate something from about your own relationships, who you are as a friend, as a, in our case, a husband. Um, but it also like, I like that. I like that. I, 
I, it's, it's almost like, I think man might've said this as well. It's like 12 angry men where after everything is done, that's when you, you're able to ascertain what the marriage probably looked like when, it, even mm-hmm. when it was at its best. Um, and we see like some flashbacks, but they're like very sure. minimal. Yeah. Um, and so like you get a really strong sense that this is, this is this marriage. It's not meant to be a stand in for every marriage. You can learn something, you can extrapolate something, but it's not meant to be every marriage. This is one, this is simply a marriage story. I wish there had been an a in front of it. Um, and, uh, so I really, I just like the way that it's, it's put together. I like the way that it's written. I love the way that it's acted. And I really, really appreciate the music. Uh, that music really worked for me and I didn't expect it to. Um, yeah, the, the the music in the in the scene because I, I just watched it last night yeah but when the the power goes out and he comes over to help her close the gate yeah. to her driveway because it won't it won't close on its own because the power's out that that music is so beautiful and that scene is so beautiful and I think this is one of those instances where you know I've talked about in the past that often the vast majority of the time the music is meant to simply enhance what's already there. But every once in a while, the music is used to help inform what's there, inform our view of what's there. And so we're seeing some pretty dramatic stuff. And then the music comes in, and it's not comedic, but it's lighter than one would assume. Mm-hmm. And so the the music almost has a tragicomic quality, and um, and it lets you know that, like, it, it, the music almost assures you, that, like, hey, I know this is bad, but the they're going to be okay. These characters are going to be able to move past this. And sure enough, when you get to the end, the, the both characters sort of extend a little something to the other saying like, like uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson, it's revealed that she now has a directing career. And she says something where she's like, I think I see what, what you mean after all, you know, like what, what would, what the big deal was after all these years, you know, like, he was a director and got so wrapped up in that that he didn't really have time for anybody else because he had a responsibility to mm-hmm. his crew and his cast. And now she's in that position, and it's not as though she's like, you know what, you were right, let's get back together. It's not that, but it's more like in retrospect, like, yeah, you know, I think I see now how you let your priorities get so out of whack. Um, and so it's... Uh, I don't know. I, I like that the film is not trying to be overly grand, not trying to be operatic. It keeps things very domestic while still being cinematic. And, you know, the camera is not a passive uh, presence in the film. Uh, the camera is still pretty active. And, uh, yeah, I really, I really responded to it. It's I, I really love it. And it's not in your honorable mentions or your top 10. No, I, so I assume you kind of hated it. No, no, I, I, I felt, I, I think I put it off subconsciously for some of the same reasons you did as I was mm-hmm. afraid of what it would make me feel or yeah. fear. Um, and I think the reason it fell low, I still think it's great, especially the acting and the music the cinematography are, are, are great. Um, you've got a great, I didn't, like I knew Laura Dern was in it and I had just learned from you that Ray Liotta was in it. I didn't know that Julie Haggerty plays Scarlett Hansen's mom oh, or that Merritt Weaver plays her sister. They're yeah. so great together. So I, li- I I had a lot of fun with it in that way. Um, I think that, I think I, the reason it, didn't quite connect with me is that I saw so little of me and my wife's relationship in them. Un- uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't I, see uh, much of us in yeah. them either. Yeah. Which is what I was afraid. I was like, Oh, this is going to be a picture of how a marriage falls apart. And that's like, that's a, so scary to me because I yeah. don't ever want to, uh, <laughs> uh, be apart from my wife. Um, 
uh, and so I, I did have a little bit of like, uh, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't like putting myself in Adam driver's shoes and saying, well, I, well, I wouldn't be like him and I wouldn't fall in love with someone like her, right. but also putting myself in her shoes and kind of realizing, especially as the movie, like the movie starts, I feel like she seems like kind of the bad guy. Cause she's the one who's like the right. first to go to a lawyer when they had talked about not going to a lawyer. She's not participating in the mediation yeah. thing. Um, and as things go on, you kind of realize like this, uh, um, I kind of felt like, I think she's right. Like, I think she was right to leave. This is like, he's a good guy. He's a good dad, yeah. but he was not good for her. And I, and I, so I feel like it was maybe less balanced than I thought it was going to be. Cause by the end I was just kind of on her side. I was on both of their sides as people cause they're both yeah. good people, but I was on her side and like, yeah, this needed to end this way. Although what's interesting is that. I've talked to Jen about it. I talked to friend of the show, Jason Eakin about it. And one thing that we agree on is that like, they really weren't communicating. If they had like gone to a marriage counselor for a while, I think they probably could have stayed together and rightfully so. I think they could have worked some of this out. Probably. But like when they talk about like, that's not what I said. I said this and you realize like, this seems to be the first that these characters are either saying it or mm-hmm. really hearing it. Uh, and so that's, that's yeah. the other thing is like, cause I do think the film is on top of everything else kind of about divorce in some cases about the, the industry of divorce. Um, yeah. but also this idea of like, don't get me wrong. I think, I think divorce is a thing that, that is, is necessary sometimes, but I also feel like it's, it's really hard. I've been married almost 15 years and we've come close to like, not divorce, but we've come to a point where it's like, I do not enjoy you. Um, and that's not a good place to be in. And we took steps and they were really, really hard steps to get out of that place. And then thankfully when you get out of that place, you're better equipped to not go back. Um, so yeah, it's, I like that the film didn't treat it as like just a straight up, like, one person was genuinely abusive or, and even the idea that he cheated on her, even that is couched in like, you got to look at the context in which he did it. You know, not that I'm on board with it, but I I definitely see where he's coming from. Um, did you feel less critique? And this is so unlike me to feel this way, but did you feel that Martha Kelly's character, the social worker at the end was a little too overtly comedic (sighs) for that point in the movie? A little bit. I, because of where it was in the movie, I think clearly Noah Baumbach was like, we need a little, we need a release valve here. Um, it's tough. Having met with a lot of social workers and that sort of thing, um, as a function of adoption, some work for the County, some work for, uh, individual companies. And, uh, they've never been quite to her level. <laughs> Some of them have been a little close. Yeah. Oh. Where uh they just they want to be objective, they want to be officious, and they want to be professional to such an extent that they're not super uh human. In, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh I'm moving on to my number three. Okay. Uh my number three is where are you going? Uh my number three is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time. In Hollywood. What a coincidence. That's my number three as well. Oh, perfect. Uh, well, that means uh, I'll be moving to my number two th- faster than I thought I would. But um, yeah, this is, uh, I, and I said at the time, and uh, I said at the time after one viewing, after a second viewing, it is confirmed this is my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think that there's, uh, I don't think that he much like I talked about the souvenir and like, I, I wouldn't have felt the same way about it if I were in my early twenties. Sure. I saw it. I don't think that Quentin Tarantino could have made this movie at any point before. Not, now that he's what he's like 50 now, right? Yeah. He's about the same age. I think the characters are supposed to be late forties, early, early fifties. Mm-hmm. The, the two men like that's, uh, that's clearly what he's making. He's making a movie that is, I think so, it's so full. It's so open hearted and full of love and sympathy, except for not for the Manson family. Sure. Um, but <laughs> notably, but, uh, very notably. Yeah. But I, I think uh, I'll say something that I think Scott said when he did his top 10, that some of the critiques of the movie about how it views this era, uh, uh you know, uh, in, in Hollywood and Los Angeles and in the country, um, some of the cre- some of those critiques are valid, but it's also, this is a kind of alternate dimension. You know, this is once again, uh, uh, I guess this is a spoiler, but it came out in July. So you had time like in glorious bastards. He's rewriting history. Things happen differently than they did. And so this is kind of like, a. uh, this is his psychological playground where he's allowed to, to, to make things happen, sort of wistfully look back and see how things, uh, could have gone and not in like a, wit of the staircase type of like regretful, like, right. Oh, I wish things have been like this. He does, but it's also, it's just like, it, it's just a little bit fanciful and, uh, patient and kind hearted and, and, and open and loving. And, uh, I, I don't think that, not that I think that Quentin Tarantino was one of those people. There were a lot of people from his era who were like following in his footsteps, not as well, who did write movies that were, uh, cynical and not um, uh, not actually in love with their characters. Yeah, uh, I think he always has has some compassion to his characters, but never. I don't think ever to this extent uh, have we seen characters who are. Because that's the other thing is Quentin Tarantino is known for partially defining like American nineties cool. Yeah, you know the you know hitmen talking about Burger King stuff like that yeah. that that sort of thing. I think. Here you've got two characters who are very uncool, and that's kind of yeah. their thing is coming to terms with their uncoolness. And I think it's Quentin Tarantino probably processing like I'm not the Wonderkind anymore. Yeah. I'm a middle aged, established Hollywood uh, director. I'm not making the movies that are uh, you know showing up on uh, dorm room walls <laughs> in yeah. posters any anymore. Uh, I'm not as cool as I used to be. And you know what? That's yeah. That's okay. In in a way, and when I it know. comes down to it, I can still destroy the people that are <laughs> cool currently. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but um, that's and this is the thing I'm almost get emotional thinking about is that he doesn't. I don't think he. I'm gonna get emotional. I don't think he saves Sharon Tate in the movie because he thinks she would have gone on to have an amazing career. Right. I think he see uh, the tragedy to him is that the tragedy to him is that she never got the chance to become uncool. Yeah. It's, you know, um, I, I also get oddly emotional when I talk about this film. Yeah. Um, you know, when people talk about the ending, they, I'd say understandably. So they're talking about the violent ending. Yeah. But the movie's not over. No, the mover movie has this wonderful moment where Rick finally gets not a full 
not even a full acceptance, he gets acknowledgement yeah. from people that are currently cool and hip. Yeah. And what's more is Sharon Tate. She's not to a point yet where she's a big star. She's married to Roman Polanski. That's a big deal. Right. But she herself is still like fourth, fifth banana in a Dean Martin movie, you know? <laughs> uh, and so, but she can still, there's still the novelty of Hollywood for her. It's all still fresh and exciting and fun. And there's just, I think the real rage that comes with the violent ending is this idea of like Hollywood at this point was in a state of transition and a state when we're now starting to hear from more women, more minorities, like people are starting to get a voice and then people, and then people who would appear to be in favor of that appear to be counterculture, they show up and they fucking ruin it uh, because they are, they're doing it for their own reasons. Charlie Manson is doing it for his own right. uh, megalomaniacal reasons. And as a result, in, a, in the same way that like, you know, that plane going down was like the day the music died. I genuinely feel like Tarantino might view this as like the day that new Hollywood died. It still continued, obviously, yeah. but it was a, we had to be a little bit more careful because the the free spirits that we thought were going to save us, oh, it turns out they're they're just as corruptible as anybody right. else. And so I think he laments this moment, uh, which destroyed Sharon Tate and her baby and these other innocent people. And this may sound strange. In this alternate reality. I don't think Roman Polanski does what he would go on to do. I think, yeah, I think you said this at the time, you know, that's, yeah, that's um, interesting. it's, it's, it really is just setting us off on this whole other course. And, but in the end, I think the film is very much about you at, we have characters that are making movies and TV. We, ha- and have been for a while. We have a young woman who's only just getting into it. And then by the end, the film itself winds up being a testament to what movies and what art can be, which is, yes, we know what reality is and it can be wonderful and it can be horrible. And what happened to Sharon Tate and the rest of the people in that house was a, was rea- was horrible reality. And for a moment art can say, yes, we know it was there and it's going to be there waiting for us when we get back. But just go with me for a minute and wouldn't it be wonder art can show us like the world that could be, which can actually help inspire us when we see the world that is and be like, okay, well what can we do to create that? It's too late now to go back and do anything in this situation, but what can we do? What should we, what could we possibly be on the lookout for in society, in our own lives, that sort of thing. Um, it's a film that is shockingly ambitious thematically Um, some would say, I mean, of course, as often happens, there are people that like Tarantino fans that look at this movie and say nothing happens. And it's like, well, strictly speaking, a lot of things happen. It's just, this is not a crime movie. And Mm -hmm. previously he, that's what he has made in some way, shape or form. Um, and, and yet like even though there, there aren't these giant set pieces uh, that you would see in something like Django Unchained or, or Inglorious Bastards, it's still just as ambitious because he really does seem to be reflecting on who he is, who he was, what movies were, what they are, 
what they always have been and what they can be. <laughs> and uh, as, as, as movie people, um, I just, it seems appropriate that it was our, it's both of our like number three, uh, because when, when I try to explain to people what movies mean to me and that there, they are, that there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but that they're more than entertainment. I wish I could show them this film, but I don't think they would go with it. I don't think they would appreciate <laughs> it, but I feel like the film sums up everything that film can be for me and mm-hmm. why it is such an important part of my life. All right. So we're already on my number two. Yeah. Um, because we killed uh, two birds with one stone there. That's right. Uh, so my number two, no one is as surprised as I am or would have been as surprised as I am to know that my number two movie of the year is a documentary, but it is Tamara Kotevska and Lubavir Stefanov's Honeyland. Okay. Uh, which was, uh, my number one movie of the year for about a month until I, uh, Oh no, it was my number one movie of the year, uh, for months, uh, is what I meant to say, uh, until I saw, uh, a very late, uh, edition, which, You've probably already guessed what it is at this point. Um, but uh, Honeyland is, it, it, it's, it's a documentary that is uh, more, more reactive than anything, which is, tends to be the documentaries that I, that I like. Um, it's also just, a lot of the best documentaries just have a, an element of luck that, that things happened while they were filming that, that, that made a good movie. Uh, the director started out following <coughs> this, uh, elderly, uh, elderly woman, um, in, uh, hold on. I wrote it down where we are. Um, Macedonia, uh, who, who lives on the countryside and keeps bees. And that's, and she takes care. She lives. The only person she lives with is her even older, obviously mother who's, who's ailing, uh, who never really leaves their very tiny, like stone house on the property. So she, this woman, you know, collects honey, goes into the city to, to sell it or trade it. And that's how she makes her, uh, life. And she on her own would be a great documentary subject, but then the farm next door, uh, a younger family moves in, um, initially to keep, uh, like horses and goats and chickens and and stuff. But when they see her bee farm, they're like, Hey, that sounds good. We'll get in on that, on that too. And, uh, they're, inexperience and their flouting of the sort of traditions of how to keep bees end up kind of fucking up the eco literally ecosystem for both for both farms um but the movie is uh, again like parasite and like midnight family this uh, this other family that comes in they do bad things but they are not bad people right the, this is a uh, in the way that midnight family or give me liberty are movies that are about our current state without being like overtly, you know, uh, strident. I feel like I used the word strident earlier, but that's exactly what they're not. Uh, you could see Honeyland as a movie about how, uh, the, pre- the economic pressure, um, and economic anxiety leads people to making rash decisions and, and fucking things up for themselves and others. Um, uh, but that's not really what it's what it's about. It's really more about, I think, to me, what I took away from it is that it's more about finding finding balance with life. It's a it's a humanitarian. In I'll use the word that I just used for one time in Hollywood. It's an open hearted movie that's uh, 
uh, about the the difficulties and the struggles of just being at peace with one another mm-hmm. of, of of accepting other people even when they're on your nerves even when they're you know the coworker that video update yeah. you don't want to you don't the want person to person selling with. snacks in uh, the street <laughs> yeah exactly and honking their little clown horn um and all of this is against this absolutely gorgeous uh backdrop of rural macedonia not a place i think about a lot but these right. rolling hills i think of about a constant is that weird uh, rolling hills of flowers and a um I I guess I, I'm not sure how much of it was sweetened in post. I know I think of documentaries. I, we we tend to want to think of like a purity, but maybe it was, there's constantly the sound of bees throughout the movie. Um, in a way that ends up becoming feeling like warm and textured as opposed to, as opposed to seeming like a threat, like, Oh no, there's a swarm of bees coming to get me. You are afraid of bees. Yes. Or wasps. wasps, That's the one. Wasps and hornets. yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, I'm lucky my wife loves me because she has seen me around wasps and it is so unmanly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, she, she kills the wasps if there are wasps. We, and we have a, a weirdly where we live, we have had, we, I've lived in this, we lived in this farm building together for 10 years almost. And, um, we tend to have wasp problems up along the gutters. And so there have been multiple situations where, she gets the spray and goes out there and gets those fucking wasps. Yeah. And I cower behind the screen door <laughs> at my, at my old place. Uh, there was like a little balcony area there. And like, for whatever reason, wasp nests just like that's right would appear and then grow overnight. And they'd yeah. be huge. It's like, this has become a terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. I've, um, I've learned from myself what an actual phobia is mm-hmm. and, I have it with wasps. Yeah. I know exactly why I was, when I was a little kid, I was uh, attacked by a bunch of wasps and stung on the head, Ugh. like in the temple by wasps. Uh, I'm sure that there's a, the, it's one of the, if it were in a screenplay, it would be too easy. This sort of one-to-one, like right. the, this happened when I was eight. Now I'm terrified of yeah. wasps, but that's the way it works. Anyway, uh, we got off track. Uh, yeah. Uh, Honeyland, uh, it definitely worth, uh, worth, uh, seeking out. I don't know what else to say. The price of admission. Yeah. Uh, price of admission. All right. So my number two is a film that I think was in your honorable mention, uh, which is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Yes. Um, honestly, what can you say about this movie that hasn't been said a billion times already? Um, it is just, it's a film that I had heard great things going in. I'm glad I saw it early enough that it it hadn't started garnering all these awards yet. Right, right. Um, so that I went in being like, well, I've heard this is good, and it's Bong Joon-ho, so I'm sure it's probably going to be pretty good. Uh, it's It nonetheless took me by surprise. Um, I was not expecting a film so tightly plotted that is genre-bending, and yet still, you know, in the midst of of like a, a crazy story like this with an eye towards like technical proficiency in a situation like that. I feel like, um, characters tend to get kind of chewed up and spit out and they're just kind of seen as like secondary, but here, uh, it's a remarkably human film. Like it, it, it always keeps more than, you know, it's not just keeping an eye towards its characters, keeping both eyes firmly on them and allowing 
the the machinations of the plot to spring from them even though on one hand it seems like i can't imagine these characters coming up with a plot so dense uh and yet you see that that these are characters that are smart they're conniving they're loving they're funny they're irresponsible uh you get a strong sense of each member of the family the uh, the other uh, servants and then the the rich family as well you get a strong sense of who each of them are individually and in relation to one another the roles they play in their family the roles they play in society uh and so like there's all that going on and yet this is not a sort of meandering meditation on class like this is a story heavy film oh, yeah, yeah. that m- is constantly moving forward and as it moves forward it collects aspects from various genres until it winds up being this this very strange hodgepodge um that perfectly balances everything in my opinion uh and one thing that i that i love is that it gets to the point where it's it can be so stressful because these characters, in order to keep their ruse going, uh, they have to push themselves further than I think most of the most of the viewers would would do. Like there comes a moment when they get a phone call that oh uh, someone's coming home early. Mm-hmm. Now my first thought was all right, look, it was a good run. Let's go home. <laughs> Let's leave before they get here, and that's the end of all of this. And we'll have to find something new. But no, they are committed to this, and it's like we can make this work. And it speaks to like the the their stubbornness. It speaks to their ingenuity, and it speaks to their desperation. That like, no, we aren't going to let this go if we can hold on to it just a little bit longer. And sure enough, they do. Uh, and yet, by the end of that, when you're astonished by what they've been uh, managed to achieve, there's still the reminder as they walk home in the rain, mm-hmm. in the pouring rain, that like their ingenuity still has not pulled them fully out of their situation. So it's, you know, it does so much, it's so much more effective, you know, talking about income inequality and disparity between rich and poor. Uh, it does so, it's so much more effective than a film that is just overtly and stridently about that. Right. right. Like, you know, it's, what we've said, what you've quoted, uh, Ron Falzone, like you can't do anything in film that you can't do. There's nothing you can say in a movie that you can't say in a genre movie. <laughs> yeah. Is what and our, our former professor used to say, and in my opinion, genre movies can often say it better, uh, because it's, it's, it's infused, uh, on a cellular level with all of these other elements. And so by the time you're done watching this really entertaining, really engaging, really engrossing film, you've also, uh, seen a very clear cut portrayal of the difference between rich and poor. And the idea that often poor, as you were saying earlier, poor wind up having to go against each other and the rich don't even know yeah, that this is going on, yeah. uh, and not because they're not because they're just sitting up there like some kind of Rockefeller, like oh yes, fight each other for my amusement. They don't even know. Yeah, and maybe if they did, they would they would try to do something, but they're just blissfully above the fray. And uh, yeah, Parasite is just such a remarkable film. I love it so much. Yeah, uh, also has what we. We, uh, one of my favorite, nothing has nothing to do with anything you just said, but I was just thinking about one of my favorite shots 
of any movie in 2019 is when after letting the old uh, maid go uh, downstairs or whatever mm-hmm. um, and then she hasn't come up for a while and then the mom goes down there and the maid is like stuck has stuck herself between the wall and the bookcase and is yeah. trying to push it it's like it's so unexpected you have no yeah. idea it's so unexpected this is your funny yeah you don't expect shot. her to be quite so spry and yeah. then but yeah. then you come to realize why she so has managed to wedge herself into yeah. that position all right so are we on to my number one movie of the year yes well i mean it's the and cats tonally your number one and my number one couldn't be more different yeah that's true yeah i guess yeah, if you've been paying attention, then you know what both of our number ones yeah. are. So I'll just say uh, the uh, Benny and Josh Safdie's Uncut Gems is my number one movie of the year. Um, partially, it's just such an achievement um, mm-hmm. uh, the the way that it uh, the way that it gets to the level and the tone and the pacing and the cadence that it gets to the way it sustains it, the way, uh, it, it sustains it without burning you out. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think having Adam Sandler and having a lot of laughs in there helps, yeah. uh, um, keep it from being too stressful. Um, but also the way that it seems to be attached to something larger that is, I think, ineffable or at least the movie doesn't try to F it. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, you know, this is a movie that's about it, it. Like when we think about the story, it's about this one guy juggling all these things, but it, the movie starts in, uh, uh, Eritrea. Where is it? I don't remember exactly. Uh, Ethiopia. Yeah, it might be Ethiopia. Maybe that was it. Yeah. yeah. Starts in Ethiopia. <clears throat> it goes in through, possibly the cosmos yeah um there's like some yeah there's there's some and then and notably not in the cosmos <laughs> yes <laughs> um uh it's it's clearly tied to to something bigger and, and and it it gets there like i said the camera moves through the cosmos or maybe the interior of the opal whatever it's sure. supposed to be it, it looks otherworldly uh but there are other ideas or other moments that seem to connect to the eternal, uh, that are less, less showy. I think of, you know, my nominee for every awards voting body that I get to vote in, which is the OFCS, the HCA, and of course the BPs, um, most importantly, yes. Uh, I nominated Kevin Garnett for best supporting actor. Mm -hmm. And that's, I know he's playing himself. I know that sounds like a joke. It's not a joke. He's not only is he great in the movie, he's, his being great is crucial to the movie. Yeah. It's not and, a cameo. I think yeah. a lot of people think of it as like a novel cameo. It's not, he's no, a full blown character And his, when he first has that jeweler's glass and first looks mm-hmm. at, into the opal, what happens to his face that's acting. And that is just as much a clue that this movie is about something more than just one guy. Yeah. Uh, as the, the camera moving through the stars and swirls and whatever the psychedelic stuff it's, it's supposed to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we also talked, well, we'll have talked. I can't remember. I can't keep things straight. Um, about the, we talked about the editing in the, in this movie and how, how, uh, um, crucial that is to the pace. Uh, the, the editing also works, uh, very well with the cinematography. The cinematography is, um, as, and this is a Safety Brothers thing I've come to realize is that at first glance, it looks 
almost haphazard the way the camera's like constantly moving um and and seems a little jittery and is like almost like with i said with giving me liberty almost almost just trying to keep up yeah and then every once in a while you sort of come around a corner as it were and there'll be a beautifully framed shot yeah um you know i uh, i either talked or will have talked about the key Stanfield pouring the, uh, I don't It's like an energy drink or whatever yeah, something like that. In, into the aquarium. It's a gorgeous shot and it just comes out of nowhere in the middle of this sort of like tense type, like yeah. back and forth. Um, and the way that the, but, but because the, the, the camera moves so much, the editing, uh, a thing I didn't say about the editing when I should have is that, uh, um, that add, that's another level of difficulty to match, you know, go from shot to shot to shot when the camera is so yeah. restless. Um, so it's a beautiful restless. That's a great way to describe the camera. Okay. In that film. Yes. Um, Sorry. Go on. So yeah, it's a beautifully composed and executed film. You've got a, every performance in the movie is better than the, the last. <laughs> like, yeah. um, from obviously Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett, Julia Fox, Eric Bogosian, Edina yeah. Menzel, um, uh, Judd Hirsch, um, yeah. is awesome in, in the movie. I mentioned the key Stanfield. He's great. Like the weekend. Uh, sure. The weekend's fine. Yeah. He's just being, that is just a, like a little cameo. Right. right? And yet um, not the smallest cameo in the film. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. I won't spoil that. I won't one. spoil that one. Um, uh, which yeah, neither Mike Francesa is also not the smallest cameo in the film, although he's yeah. not playing himself. Weird. Right. Uh, when I saw that this movie had these people playing themselves and I saw that Mike Francesa was in it, I was like, clearly he's just playing. Sure. He's going to be playing, you know, New York sports radio personality Mike Francesa. Nope, he's a, playing a character and he's pretty good. Yeah, he his, is good. In his two scenes. Um, anyway, that's that's my, my number one. Yeah. And, and uh, it was my number six, but yes. uh, you've said everything that I... The one thing that I'll mention that that, that you didn't, but you, you kind of touched on, is that like when Kevin Garnett is staring at the rock, yeah. you know, um, and then we get these, these cosmic sequences, it really does... And then we look at just this thing that is driving Adam Sandler's character it really does feel like we're just watching these characters that are, that are perpetually moving in hopes that they might for a brief moment tap into something bigger, something that gives their life meaning something that is, that is higher than themselves. And so like we get these, these sequences uh, that wouldn't seem to fit with what the film is, but it's this idea I think of, of like, yeah, we're just going along. Yes, we've got our families and we love them and we've got our jobs and we hopefully like that and all that. But every once in a while we encounter the, the you could say the spiritual or the cosmic or whatever it is, just like this this weird ethereal feeling that suddenly everything, it puts you, it, it's exhilarating, but it also puts you tremendously at ease. And in that moment, you just feel like, ah, yes, this is where life is. And people, you know, you talk to gambling addicts, you talk to really any num- anybody that is addicted to something. And it's like, even though they see the negative impact of what they're doing, there is just this brief moment when like, yes, everything is going exactly right and not merely going the way I want it to. It's going right. And I have tapped into it. It's not that I necessarily caused it. It's that I was able to tap into it just for a moment. And I think in that, I think that's what those moments are about. And just this character is just chasing that constantly. Uh, And in order to chase it, you got to be constantly moving. And the film definitely is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention my other favorite scene, which is the final uh, scene between Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett uh, yeah. when he's talking about the 
the game against the 76ers that Kevin Grant has coming up that, that night. And uh, it's like actually a weirdly darkly inspirational speech, but it's also Kevin Garnett realizing, oh, this guy's crazier than I thought yeah. he was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love yeah, that scene. Like, this guy's crazier than I thought, but I think I can use that, right? Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <coughs> so. All right. So uh, uh, your number one is also no... Uh, no, no big surprise, surprise at this because point. it was my number seven. Yeah, uh, it is Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, um, a film that uh, I was excited to see and it has really stayed with me and it really affected me in a way I wasn't expecting. Yes, because it has to do with a character who, for his own personal uh, religious reasons, uh, stands up uh, to the Nazis and does not do what they want him to do. Uh, there was some early buzz within like the community of Christian film lovers uh, about the movie. And so I went in being like, well, it's Malik. So I know that I, it'll be some level of competence. Uh, And, but what I didn't expect, and I knew that it was long as well. And what I didn't expect is this idea of, Well, the idea of the, the, the hidden aspect of it, the invisible aspect of it, that like no one, like who you really are is what you do in darkness, what you do in private. And which is to say that if you are taking a stand and no one knows about it, is it even a stand? And then you realize, no, it isn't. It's not about who sees it and who doesn't. Yeah. It's about what you can live with, with yourself. Yeah. And that's where the spiritual thing comes in is you feel like, well, you're never really alone. You always have God there with you. And on one hand, you don't want to do something that he would not approve of. And then the idea of God being with you means that you have someone to provide moral support, even if they are hidden or invisible or as many people believe, uh, non-existent. But the idea, uh, (laughs) that, that you are not, that you're never truly alone. And that's something that mm. consistently throughout the film, people don't understand. They're constantly saying, no one's watching. No one will know about this. And it's like, well, not only will I yeah. know about it and my family members to a certain extent, uh, but also I believe that there's something bigger than me, bigger than you, bigger than the public uh, that, that I am accountable to. And you could say history. I'm accountable to history. I don't think history is going to smile on you. And I'd rather be on that side. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, sacri- I'll sacrifice my present for the larger future. Um, and so it's dealing with all of these. And that's, to, and that's just the story itself. And one thing that I really love is I love the length of the film because the film's almost as long as Lawrence of Arabia and yet what a different and almost as long as the Irishman and also has a beautiful motorcycle shot. Uh, yeah, like that, is true. that is true. <laughs> I yes. thought I remember thinking about Lawrence of Arabia while watching the movie because of the motorcycle thing. And yet, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Terrence Malick incorporated that purposely to draw comparisons. Like, you know who T Lawrence was. It was he, he was like glorious and he died before his time. Here's another guy who died before his time and didn't get any press at all at the time. Nobody wrote books about him. He wasn't allowed to write a book about himself. Um, but one thing that I'll say is it's interesting that my number 10 and my number one, they're these bookended. You've got the Irishman and you've got a hidden life, both long movies mm-hmm. based on true stories. And one, a guy is able to live his entire life and looks back and thinks, what have I done? 
It's like, I was able to live, live life totally on my terms through making constant moral compromises and it all has added up to nothing. Mm -hmm. And this is my life was cut short. Seemingly nobody was ever going to know about this, but at least I could live with myself to the very end. And, and I like that Terrence Malick decided like, you know what? These characters keep telling him that his life isn't going to matter, that his, his life is not the epic inspiration that, uh, that other people's, you know, protests might be. So, you know what? I'm going to give it the epic treatment. I'm going to give him a f- the full three hours. Like he was George Patton, like he was T.E. Lawrence, whoever it is. Like I'm going to give him just as much screen time or at least his story, just as much story, screen yeah. time as, Gandhi, who everyone was very aware of his yeah. protests, you know. Well, you mentioned screen time uh, is kind of a co-lead situation. Sure. Valerie Packner uh, or Pachner yeah. uh, ends up having about as much screen time. Yeah. But that gets and she's making to, a sacrifice just as much as he is. Well, yeah. And this is something that uh, I thought about. You mentioned I'm glad you mentioned the idea that like the idea of even if not doing it for anyone or for anything <laughs> that someone or something or some presence yeah. is, is watching. Um, Posterity, you could say. But not, I'm talking about God here. Oh, sure. Um, and I uh, I was raised Catholic. I think the characters are Catholic. I right? believe so, yeah. And so I was put in mind of the idea that the the thing that separates, the main thing that separates the Catholic, I guess there's more, there's a number, but the, the, the to me the main thing that separates the Catholic faith from the Protestant faith is that Catholics believe that you are not saved through faith alone, that there are also acts or sacraments that you have to, right. that, that you have to, to do, you, you know, you have to do things like help, you know, uh, help clothe and feed the poor and sure. take care of the sick. And also you're supposed to get married, which seems like you're supposed <laughs> to, I think that that's marriage is one of the sacraments. So you're supposed to get married unless I guess, unless you're a priest. Um, hmm. anyway, Interesting. Uh, but, um, uh, I kept I, so I, that's what I was thinking about when when you get these uh, long sequences of Valerie Paxner and her character's sister and her two daughters like taking care of the farm. The work that they do almost feels like uh, like like a sacrament, like something yeah. they're doing uh, uh, under the eyes of of God, yeah. just in the same way that uh, uh, Augustine. What was that's the character's name? Something Jaeger. Jaeger Stotter. I don't remember his uh, first name. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. You've got the um, uh, great. T- the two leads are, are great. Also, Bruno Gans and yeah. uh, Mikhail Nykvis, both of whom yeah. have since passed, uh, have great little uh, parts yeah. in, in the movie. And that's the other thing is that like that scene with Bruno Gans and a number of other characters regardless that people keep saying like no one's paying attention, you know, or whatever it is, you never quite know. And this is also a very Christian idea, uh, in the Bible, the idea of Jesus coming into, into contact with people. And even the people that are antagonistic towards him, he's still impacting them in some way. And so when you see Bruno Gans, who's in a position of power and, he stands to gain or lose nothing from the, our main character. And yet he still says, do you judge me? Mm. And that's the thing is, yeah, our main, our, our main guy, like he, he is killed. Uh, and yet you never quite know. We know through these letters, we now know his story, but there are any number of other prisoners, guards and that sort of thing who maybe see what he did and said, like, 
and maybe felt that type of conviction. Like, I don't think it's like, I, I have, I gave in and this Mm -hmm. guy didn't maybe in the future I can do the right thing, whatever that might look like. And it's just, it's a film that is inspiring, but also beautifully structured, beautifully made. Uh, I love the way it looks and it just really stayed with me. I found it inspiring. Um, and it made me, it, it definitely, you know, to go back to that idea of like spiritual conviction, it made me wonder like how many compromises am I making? And for such small things, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, yeah. there's the, there's the wonderful scene, uh, a line in, uh, in a man for all seasons where a young John Hurt uh, plays a character named Richard Rich, mm, uh, which is unfortunate. It was a real guy, but uh, still, that was, that was his name. And he the winds, boy in the world. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so he winds up selling out Thomas More so that he can be like a high a high official in Wales. And uh, and when Thomas More, he says, he's like, what? He's like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? but for whales. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Uh, and I, and I definitely has stayed with me, especially because of a hidden life where it's like this guy was willing to lose his life, deprive his wife of a husband and his children of a father, all for a pro a, a, a not even a protest that's public, but like for a stand that no one will see. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I worry about what people think of me on Twitter, you know, like, <laughs> come on. So it definitely, it definitely has, uh, uh hit a, a deep chord in me, uh, both as a film goer, as a person, as a Christian, whatever you want to say. And, uh, and I really, I really love it. I feel like just in general, looking at your top 10 and my top 10, I think it's a pretty solid, pretty solid year. Honorable mentions too. You know, yeah, this isn't, yeah. uh, this is actually a surprisingly deep bench, yeah. I think. And I haven't even seen that many movies this year. So, yeah. all right. Well, um, this is, uh, I think a little bit, a little bit shorter than our usual, usual, uh, uh yeah, time, I think because we had more overlap than we have in the past That's couple true. years. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks everybody. You can find us at battleship pretension.com. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Davy Pretension. Uh, let's see, what's going on on this week? Still, uh, You can still find all my Sundance uh, reviews on the website um, and, and also reviews of the Oscar-nominated shorts, the animated and the documentary, the live action should be coming soon, I think. Um, uh, soon, yeah. Or probably by the time you're hearing this is already up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course the listener or not the listener, our contributor top tens, uh, right. uh, the most recent as of this recording is Rudy's. I'm not sure if another one, uh, Alex is uh, coming up. Okay. Uh, so that's all available at battleship pretension.com. All of that and more, um, Tyler, you're on Twitter at Tyler pretension. That's right. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, not that I can, not that I can think of. I did reference, uh, the documentary that I made real redemption, uh, I was told it's coming out in February. They said there's a possibility it might get pushed to March, which I'm not thrilled about, but, uh, but I will keep you guys, uh, updated. Um, so there's a trailer coming out soon. So I'll, I'll post that on, uh, battleship and more than one lesson when the time comes. But, uh, that's all I can think of right now. All right. So, uh, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.